welcome to the very first episode of Elevator Bullpen. Uh, I am Kyle Scher, and my co-host is one Joshua Rapier. Hello. Hello, hello. So excited to be here. Get us, get us by side. <laughs> so th- th- this podcast uh, comes from an idea that we we bounce back and forth uh, a couple of times. Uh, if you don't know, I have my own podcast called Cause Internal Monologue, which he has guested on a couple of times. Um, and the, the idea of this is that he, uh, was a film student. I was a creative writing mm-hmm. student. We're both graduated now. And, uh, we want to use our, uh, expertise to sort of, uh, as creative people to sort of guide and show what we would do if we had control of whatever franchise. Mm-hmm. And by expertise, we, he means we're massive geeks who love yes. to create our own Fan fiction, essentially. Correct. <laughs> it's always fun to to pass along ideas. It's always fun to just take, have a, people's own take on it. Mm-hmm. This kind of spawned. Uh, so we had a uh, thing in a, a. I ran a the comic book society at our university that we both attended, and mm-hmm. he was a member. And we we did like a uh, revitalize a old public domain character, and so it's sort of like that, where it, you know it's uh, take something do something new with it and it could be a current franchise an old deceased franchise whatever um it is basically whatever interests us this week or that i suppose this episode because these are being released bi-weekly and will be done in five episode season batches um is star trek we're both trekkies mm-hmm. both of different levels i have seen every star trek to date Everything, including the animated series, all the movies, all the shows, even the new stuff. Um, he is primarily a TNG guy. Yep, I am getting there. I will reach your level one day in the next <laughs> two decades. <laughs> um, and I, I figured uh, we could just uh, give a quick example of our history with the franchise. You know, Star Trek has been a presence in my life as far as I can remember. Uh, My mom grew up watching Star Trek, and so she introduced me to Star Trek pretty much immediately the moment she could. Uh, My dad, more he's one of those Star Wars Star Trek people where, uh, you know, you can't like both, even though he does like both. (laughs) But uh, he he does enjoy some Star Trek from time to time. Uh, And Star Trek is just kind of that thing that's always on me and uh, and my mom. We do regular binges of uh, primarily DS9, but uh, the other shows as well. Um, her big one is Voyager, mine is DS9, uh, but we do like them all for various different reasons. Um, and Star Trek's just kind of been a thing that's always been in my life one way or another. What about you? It hasn't had that much of a long-lasting impact. I, it was only fairly recently I got into it when the new movies came out, the Chris Pine movies. Mm-hmm. So that's when it kind of became, uh, let's say, resurgent in its popularity for the more mainstream audience. So, you know, I enjoyed the movies. I saw a couple of the occasional episodes on repeats and television, mainly Enterprise. But I'd say my first real proper gateway was the next generation movie, First Contact, which to this day still remains my favorite Star Trek movie. Uh, I fell in love with, with Data, Picard, and after that, I just jumped right into TNG. My parents got me the DVD box sets for TNG, the original series. It's only like in the last couple of years I finally got to visit Voyager and DS9. Really liking these series. I'm just kicking myself. I haven't gone to them sooner. Otherwise, it could have been, you know, you and me could have been on equal footing for this series, <laughs> which made research for, the, for my own pitch story quite a hassle because you want to get the facts right, but you don't want to keep yeah. spoiling my stuff myself. 
<laughs> uh yeah uh you know especially when uh a lot a lot of my pitch i don't know about yours is uh comes from continuity stuff that i think that uh is just not not as well developed and i think could be so uh that is the deal that uh the the format of this show uh is that uh, about 20 30 minutes of personal pitch and then like 20 30 minutes of discussion uh and mm -hmm. then repeat again uh but uh i figured uh if you have any questions please chime in and i will do the same for you mm -hmm. um so uh without further ado my pitch is a sequel to enterprise it's called star trek federation mm -hmm. um and yes that is the name of that old brian singer attempt reboot one i never knew that <laughs> yeah brian singer and a couple other uh, really well-known uh filmmakers uh tried to revitalize uh Star Trek during the down period between uh, basically uh, Enterprise being cancelled until J.J. Abrams' film. And there was a bunch of creators who tried to do that. Uh, the one that looked most interesting to me, because I'm biased, is uh, the Babylon 5 uh, one, which was uh, JMS wanted to do a complete and utter reboot, uh, heavily serialized Kirk and Spock uh, style thing. Uh, but Brian Singer's one was set in the 32nd century I'm not that way, but uh, mine, uh, mine's set in the 22nd century, as it's, it is a sequel to Enterprise. But uh, yeah, it's called Star Trek Federation. Mm -hmm. And my general idea was, so if you look at the Star Trek franchise, um, ev everything about that franchise is trying to play on the Dragon uh, uh, Wayne to the Stars, as Jim Von Barry, you know, uh, originally pitched the show. It's uh, a space western. It is uh, going down and exploring the frontier. And uh, DS9 is the most overt with it, uh, with being the rifleman in space. It's about a you know the 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 leader of a town and his son going out to the frontier and trying to learn to live a life out there. You know, um, and to me, one thing I always thought Star Trek lacked was a real sense of place and world building. Uh, you know what the Federation is. You know mm -hmm. vague things about the Federation. But what does the Federation actually do um, outside of just be genuinely peaceful? And that's it. Is there any tangible difference to the average common casual viewer between the Klingon Empire and the United Federation of Planets? To me, the, the rabid fan who's watched everything, yes, there is a very clear difference I can tell you straight away. But to the casual viewer, one warlike, one peaceful. And to me, that always seemed very um, boring and uninteresting. Um, and uh, Star Trek VI was, the very, was one of the very few times that uh, we really tried to explore the political side of this world. Um, you know, with an assassination attempt on the uh, Federation president and all that jazz. Um, and Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country is my favorite uh, movie. And then Deep Space Nine went further with that by straight up, you know, dealing with the political situations of uh, how does a world that, uh, that the Federation has interacted with and believes could make a good member, how do they get them ready for membership? Uh, and uh, then, of course, there's a full-out war in DS9. So we're, we're dealing with far more political stuff. But if you look at anything else, TG, it's about Strange New Worlds, TOS, Strange New Worlds, Voyager, Strange New Worlds on the other end of the galaxy. Uh, Discovery, you know, uh, it's a new thing every season, but mostly big mystery. Uh, and, and it's like there is 
there's a lack here of actual real grounded look at what the average life in the Federation is, outside of Starfleet, definitely, but also a look into the political and governmental, uh, you know, agencies. Um, and so my big thing here was to look at a uh, the, at the Federation, and I wanted to look at uh, specifically the presidential uh, cabinet, because um, to me, uh, you know what what Star Trek desperately needs is something like a Babylon Five or a West Wing, um, something that is uh, heavily political, heavily um, about world building. Um, but still keeps that space allegory thing alive. And especially in the world we live in today, um, in which a lot of things are settled through the United Nations or a lot of uh, yelling and screaming between the leaders of various different countries, I think it would be interesting to carry on Star Trek's tradition of exploration uh, and exploration as allegory to instead do exploration of allegory for real-world political events. I saw it. Yeah, and as I was thinking this idea through, the general idea was some nebulous Star Trek Federation president, you know, just somewhere, anywhere. And my original idea was to do post-Voyager, post-Nemesis, because, you know, th th that's an interesting time in the Star Trek universe. It's the place that has the most world-building. But then, I, then as I was thinking more about it, I realized something. Jonathan Archer... Is George Washington in space? Good <laughs> yeah, uh, George Washington was a military commander who lost more battles than he ever won. Mm. Um, but he was big. He was popular. Uh, he was well regarded by his troops, and he went on to find his way into politics that he was not at all comfortable in. Um, and then after independence. Uh, America was governed by the Articles of Confederation, which just was not working. So a lot of the founding fathers returned and created the Constitution. And basically, when they decided, hey, we're going to have to have a leader, let's make a president, he didn't even get a choice, really. They just said, oh, yeah, it's George Washington. And he went, what? <laughs> and it's just like this entire situation where he didn't want this, but he got forced into it, and he just accepted it, and he went, okay, fine. I'm just a military guy. I don't know why I'm here in politics, but I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do, and people trust me. Um, and, you know, um, George Washington had many faults, and we do kind of idolize him uh, because he's one of the founding fathers, but that is neither here nor there. The historical precedence of man who doesn't want to be in politics gets wrapped up into that is an interesting concept. Um, and especially if you look at the fact that he he helped garner what we now associated with the United States of America, whereas Jonathan Archer, um, the Federation was not formed during his time frame. You know, uh, it was United Earth, um, and he helped uh, through uh, Enterprise's Four Seasons, uh, you know, make contact with various other aliens, negotiate with them. And eventually uh, create the Coalition of Planets, which would eventually turn into the United Federation of Planets. Um, and I was like, this is an interesting angle, especially if you consider the fact that he started out as a test pilot 
um, you know, uh, initially. Uh, then uh, he became the first captain of the first true Warp 5 exploration vessel. And then starting in Season 3 onwards, he became almost a soldier. And he wasn't prepared for that. There's That's that's his arc in Season 3 and Season 4 is, you know, I, I went out to explore a strange new world. And I said I found myself boldly going into the battle. Um, and uh, then if you look at Star Trek Timeline, um, the Earth-Romulan War happens literally only a few years after Enterprise ends. Um, uh, so... Uh, he went from basically test pilot, astronaut, explorer, soldier, to uh, politician. Um, and I think that's an interesting goal, you know, so, sort of goalpost to keep moving and look at him, how he changes from career to career to career, much like George Washington did. Um, and I am a big proponent of no nostalgia. Nostalgia bait is very, very annoying. Um, and... Uh, you know, me talking about, the, you know, bringing back Archer and stuff, that is very clear nostalgia, but I think it's a nostalgia with an, with an attempt. First of all, uh, if I was going to choose to bring back nostalgia, Enterprise is probably not the show to do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, it is four seasons that got cancelled. Pretty much everyone dislikes it except for those people who've actually watched it and realized season three and season four are actually pretty solid shit. Um, and uh, two, uh, I, this is not nostalgia for gratuitous sake, a.k.a. CGI Luke and all of the Mandalorian and Boba Fett. <laughs> this is... This is a... This is bringing back a character that still has an arc, in my opinion. And while I'm going to be touching on a lot of stuff from Enterprise and maybe bringing back some old Enterprise crew members, that is not the main focus. The main focus is to look at how this man went from astronaut to politician. Um, and I think that is a far more interesting thing than just, here's old character you know, ain't that cool? <laughs> um, and this is a pitch for a TV show, uh, uh, for the first season specifically consisting of 10 episodes. Mm -hmm. And while this story, uh, with a lot of changes could be done in other, in other settings, uh, or even can be done in a different medium, uh, with Archer still... Uh, in comics, I think that the the entire premise of the show rides or dies on Scott Bakula returning. Um, and so the first season is set in 2184, mm -hmm. which is canonically the first year of Archer as president, as seen in the uh, uh, in Amir Darkly, uh, uh, when they look up his historical records of the Mirror Universe. And then uh, it, it's about roughly 30 years after Enterprise. Uh, roughly 24 years after the end of the Earth-Romulan War, and 23 years after the founding of the United Federation of Planets. The primary setting is uh, the, the Palace de la Concorde uh, in Paris, France, on Earth, uh, which is the headquarters of the Federation and the home of the President. Uh, and my belief uh, for the intro and theme song should be uh, we heard the UFP's uh, an uh, anthem, national anthem, in a DS9 episode called Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. I think that should be done in a new rendition. Oh, that's about neat. Yeah, and I think that the, uh, and that the intro should be um, an examination of all the different flags, all the different members of the Federation. That sounds cool. Yep. I mean, nothing's, gonna, nothing's ever going to top Faith of the Heart, though. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, oh, it's glorious, isn't it? I know. Uh, I I watched the first episode recently, and I just, 
hearing that song it just hit me right in the nostalgia feels. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, major characters. I got seven of them. Uh, big surprise. President Jonathan Archer. Mm-hmm. He's 72 years old, which is actually not too far away from uh, Scott Bakula's actual age. It's only like a couple years apart. So, if it was made right now, Scott Bakula is pretty much the correct age. He's remembered as the prominent captain of the NX-01 Enterprise in the days before the United Federation of Planets. After several years as an admiral, he retired from Starfleet and worked as a Federation ambassador to Andoria and Federation counselor. He had no intention of becoming president. Uh, he accepted his role in politics initially because he knew he was going to be pressured upon him. Uh, he's a hero and a pioneer, and uh, because of that, he bears the weight of his reputation that he knows for a fact continues to be revered hundreds of years from now, even after his death, thanks to Crewman Daniels and the Temporal Cold War. So he's a man living in his own shadow because he knows what he's supposed to be, but he doesn't feel like he can live up to that. And uh, there was a large scandal with the previous uh, president in the UFP. Uh, so uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, this led to the question if uh, the United Federation plans could uh, continue on past the turn of the century. And it was believed that old blood had needed to be brought back. So who better than to bring the man who symbolically brought all the races together than one Jonathan Archer. Uh, Jonathan uh, is a man of great character and morals. And while his past did test those lines, uh, he finds the world of politics even more uh, distasteful in its moral quagmire. Um, and in many ways, he hates his job. He hates that he was forced uh, first into it. He hates that he was elected. He hates that uh, you know that he has to bear the responsibility of this, um, and in- ensure that history remembers him as the great man he is supposed to be, rather than the man he feels he is. Uh, but he does believe in doing the right thing, and he has a penchant for naive optimism, uh, and his perspective as a gallant explorer in those early days of Starfleet and before the United Federation Plans sort of color uh, his perception of things, which means that more seasoned career politicians uh, do not really like him all that much, uh, for the most part, because they see him as this sort of interloper in traditional politics. He dreams of days when he was the explorer, Finding strange new worlds, uh, and uh, and the crew that he uh, found to be his family. Uh, many years on, uh, you know, a lot of his crew has moved on. Uh, as we saw in Enterprise, uh, in the final episode, Charles Trip Tucker is dead. Archer has a new dog that replaced Porthos, who is named after Trip, his good old friend. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, he he maintains some contact with his old crew, but due to life and uh, demands. Of his position, these once familiar bonds uh, have reduced to nothing but occasional visits and messages. The most prominent of that being to Paul, who he barely speaks to anymore. Uh, and the idea is there that is that they were once really close friends, but then when Trip died, who she was romantically involved with, and he was his best friend, they sort of grew apart because whenever they saw each other, they just were reminded of Trip and. Uh, Maybe he is frightened of the great man he is supposed to be, or too stuck uh, in being blinded by the past uh, to see what's really in front of him. Uh, either way, he f- he feels lost and is merely floating through life after his captaincy uh, ended. He's merely the job, the person history will remember. He has nothing to really care for outside of that. The uh, next major character is Talda Shran. She is 28. She's the daughter of famed Andorian Imperial Guard Tylik Shran. Uh, she's half Andorian, half Adar. 
Um, and as a result, she has minor telepathic powers and a visual impairment instead of full blindness and full telepathic powers, um, you know, as seen in full-blooded Anar. Uh, she is uh, the presidential chief of staff for the Archer administration. Uh, due to her background, she's often outspoken. Uh, and have very strong opinions about the nature of societal divides because her mother was an Anar, which was a subspecies of uh, the Andorians, and they they were kind of regarded as this uh, annoying subclass, basically. And uh, her mother, Jamal, sort of inst instilled in her an understanding of, uh, of the societal divide between Anars and Andorians. Meanwhile, her father, while a good man, and while um, someone history will remember and a personal friend to Archer, he did unequivocally use racial slurs, such as pink skin, when referring to even Archer, his close friend. Uh, so she is a warrior for social justice, uh, and she embodies the ideal of what the United Federation should stand for, equality and freedom for all, and she stands it in, for it in a way in which Clearly, this is someone who hasn't been ruined by political realities, who hasn't been beaten down by the very, very broken system uh, that is real-world politics. Despite her optimism, her she, she, she does not have good ties with her family. Her mother died in the earth Romulan War, um, uh, and uh, her father, uh, while uh, remaining... A uh, prominent figure in Andorian history and is now an admiral in uh, the new multicultural Federation Starfleet. Um, she is estranged from them. They don't really talk all that much. Very rarely do they ever talk. Um, uh, and it, it, it's more of a, um, it, it, it's a sort of thing where they're obligated to talk to each other rather than any real father-daughter talk. Uh, the next uh, main character is Sandar. He is a Vulcan over a century <laughs> old. Uh, he is a man of intense logic and stoicism, as is the norm with his people. Uh, however, uh, he's been witness to many events that led to division among his people. Uh, so he is known to be able to temper his logical side in service of understanding all points of view, uh, and is known as a great listener. He's often considered a radical figure in some parts because he was a uh, outspoken supporter of the Cyrenite movement, which is now the current political party of Vulcan. Um, and he was an advocate for the sufferers of Pinar Syndrome. Um, and uh, despite his political activism, he had no real interest in actual political bodies and in, in working in that kind of field. However, he was persuaded by his old student and fellow radical Tapau to uh, serve on the Federation Council uh, in her place, because initially it was offered to her, and she turned it down. Um, and... Uh, he is now commonly referred to as the voice of Tapau, which is kind of ironic because he is not only her her elder, but also her teacher. <laughs> um, and uh, now he's the Federation Commissioner for External Affairs uh, for the Archer Administration. Uh, despite his more traditional Vulcan exterior and attitude, he's actually half Romulan. Ah. This is a fact known exclusively to Tapau and himself. Due to the Earth Romulan War being in living memory, he tries to ensure that this remains a secret as it could cost him his career. The fact of, of his Romulan heritage does explain his characteristic un-Vulcan ability to switch from hardline logic to more empathetic listener. So, before it was cancelled, I know the plan was to poll, it was to reveal she was half Romulan. Are you planning to keep up that idea in this universe? Um, potentially, um, I have plans for T'Pol, as we'll see, on uh, later. Okay, very cool. I may potentially bring that in. I'm, I'm still filling that out, because, 
honestly, what I a thing I really liked from season three of Enterprise was um, the way that they explained that she was more emotional. I know that the plan was to bring in that she was half Romulan, but um, you know that she got addicted to this uh, this uh, drug called Trillium D that affects emotions uh, emotions in Vulcans. And so she was able to tap into that emotional side of her, and I kind of really liked the fact that she was a full-blooded Vulcan who basically ended up tapping into her emotions in a way that no Vulcan ever had. Um, and um, uh, in that being and her being an outlier, I also do like the half Romulan idea. So um, I don't know. I I have I have plans for T'Pol, but she's not a major player in this series as of yet. She will be in season two, and that will become obvious as we actually go through the episodes. So, um, that is a potential. Very cool. Uh, the next one is Gretcha Tor. She's a female Tellarite, mid 30s. Uh, she is a Federation Commissioner of Defense for the Archer Administration. Despite being a Tellarite, Gretcha is often quiet and non combative, uh, nor does she enjoy arguments all that much. She prefers to keep her cards close to her chest. In a strange irony, she has more in common with most Vulcans than she does with Tellarites. Uh, this by no means says that she is timid, simply that she waits for the right time and place to strike, known for taking great delight in providing overabundance of evidence to prove her, her argument is right uh, in any argument she finds herself in. Uh, Gretchen has connections to the Orion Syndicate via proxy. Uh, her parents accumulated a large debt with the Orion Syndicate many, many years ago. Despite their deaths, the debt did not default. It was inherited by Gretchen. Uh, the debt now hangs over Gretchen like the Sword of Damocles, putting her in the pocket of the Syndicate despite her pure intentions and anti-corruption stance. Um, next is Eyes. Eyes is a genderless insectoid Zendi uh, who is quite old for seven years old. Uh, their real name is so long and complicated, it is unpronounceable by anyone not familiar with the Zindi insectoid language, and even then, hard for non-insectoids to say. Part of their name is Aishana, which along with their insect appearance, led to their name being Eyes, uh, which they use in all professional capacities uh, to make interaction easier. Uh, they are, are the primary ambassador uh, for the uh, Zindis Council, uh, to the United Federation of Planets. Well, each Zindi branch has their own delegates. The main governing body of Zindis selects a singular primary ambassador that speaks on behalf of that part of the government. Uh, due to the short lifespan, uh, they do everything quickly. They talk extraordinarily fast, causing a universal translator to sometimes malfunction. This, along with their genuinely quirky personality and social anxiety on becoming the most politicians, leads to them to being considered an odd one out in most situations. Their lifetime goal before they die um, uh, is to see, uh, which, you know, insectoid Zindi only live about 12 years, is to see Zindi uh, admitted as a full member of the Federation before their passing. A goal that comes with uh, many complications from conflicts from many years ago before they hatched. Conflicts uh, that that seem ancient history to them, but to many, you know, is living memory only a few decades ago, and so they have a hard time understanding the general hostility towards the Zindi species. Uh, next uh, is Avrina Dantal, uh, a forty-something Vilosian. Uh, she is a the Federation Commissioner of Commerce in the Archer Administration. She is a deeply spiritual person, and she seems to have an almost serene quality about her. Her religion revolves around oneness with nature. As such, her often quite lengthy robes uh, feature floral designs. 
Uh, she is a social chameleon, able to get along with pretty much anyone, and takes an interest in a variety of topics. Uh, despite this, her penchant for uh, hands-on approach to things uh, can be off-putting, especially because she has a general distrust of using a lot of technology. This is by no means saying that she doesn't use tech, or that she's one of those like Luddites who uh, say no tech allowed. It's just that she finds a unique fulfillment in doing everything on her own devices rather than relying on something else or someone else. And so uh, that is a divide between her and most technology. The final character is Jan Linsky. A Polish man in his early 50s, Jan is the Federation Security Advisor for the Archer Administration. Jan is a very vocal man, characteristically loud and opinionated and known for a tendency to speak his mind. Uh, he is also known for his shoot-first, ask-questions-later sensibilities, uh, leading him to coming into conflict with many optimistic members of the Federation. Uh, he was a well-decorated member of Starfleet Security and gained a bit of a reputation during the earth Romulan War for being the sole survivor and early skirmish of that war. Uh, during the earth Romulan War, he came into contact with members of the rogue and, uh, and dubious organization, Section 31, and joined them. Uh, at the time, he agreed with the jingoistic and nationalistic ideology, but now, after years of, uh, of peace, he is starting to question their motives. Despite this, his sense of honor and duty forced him to maintain his ties to the members of the organization he now considers friends. In some twisted way, he views Section 31 as doing the right thing, even when their methods verge on the sadistic. Nationalism is one hell of a drug. Um, those are my main characters. I'm very enthralled, uh, very eager to learn more. Uh, so episode one, uh, titled Days of Yore. This takes place about a month into Archer's time as president. And so everyone is acquainted, but they're still getting to know each other. So Archer is awoken by his alarm. He's clearly slept very little, very, very tired person. As he's getting ready for the day, the local news is being broadcast on his view screen. It's a report of the horrible act of terrorism by the Zendi 31 years ago that cut a line of destruction from Florida to Venezuela, killing 7 million people. And goes on to talk about how the reconstruction process has been ongoing for decades, and while it is likely that the area of destruction will be completely repaired in the next decade, the emotional scars are still within the hearts of everyone. There's a brief mention of how the Zindi crisis was ended by the brave men and women aboard the Enterprise NX-01, captained by the now-president Jonathan Archer. And just as Archer finishes putting his suit on, he gets a chime at the door. Talashran enters the uh, to, uh, to inform him uh, that he, the uh, the new ambassador for the Zindi Council has arrived and wishes to meet with him immediately. Archer meets Eyes, the Zindi insectoid ambassador, who, despite seeming awkward, says that the negotiations for Zendis to join the Federation has been stalled for years due to protests, but they hope under Archer that may change. Archer recalls that the Zindi have uh, been uh, uh, been quiet since uh, the the incident decades ago that spiraled them into civil war. Uh, he assumes most that remember his mission are long gone, and he assures eyes he he, uh, he tried to resolve the situation the best he could at the time. It was a difficult time, time that no one was prepared for, and in many ways we're still feeling the uh, the aftershocks of. Archer agrees to bring the matter of Zindis admittance into the Federation back into public consciousness in the hopes of fostering better relations with a former foe. Meanwhile, Gretcher gets, uh, gets, uh, gets an unexpected call from uh, her Orion handler. Uh, the Syndicate has an invested interest in keeping the United Federation of Planets out of Zindi space uh, due to their wanton dealing of drugs and slavery, because Orion Syndicate gonna Orion Syndicate. And um, and the new Zindi ambassador is keen on moving the process forward as quickly as possible. A threat is placed on her, and she is forced to convince the Federation Council and hopefully Archer himself to stop the process in its tracks. 
Yan gets dropped a secret message from Section 31 that tells him basically the same thing. Uh, his father died in the Zindi attack 31 years ago, and uh, for, for the first time in quite some time, him and Section 31 see eye to eye. At a meeting of the Federation Council, Archer calls eyes to the stand and brings up the issue of Zindi membership. Uh, most Earth delegates are outraged that this is still being considered. None of the other worlds were involved much in the crisis, though the Andorians do remember very well that they tried to steal the prototype weapon from the Zindi to use against the Vulcans. So they remain noticeably quiet during this entire deliberation, uh, in hopes of avoiding uh, future hostilities. Uh, Sandar speaks up, saying that everyone in the council at one point or another had great grievances with each other. He points that Tala, uh, calling out that she is the daughter of uh, Tylek Shran, a, a, a man known to hold great resentment to the Vulcans, yet here she is willing to work together for peace. The topic of why the admittance process has been stalled comes up. That's when Gretchen chimes in to move the topic in a different direction, knowing that, uh, that it was outside business ventures that were causing it. Verena uh, will bring up the benefit of Zindi membership and trade, as despite the destruction of the spheres, uh, the Teflic Expanse wall much calmer than it used to be under the influence of the sphere builders, uh, still requires Chelium D to navigate safely without problems. The council uh, meeting ends with the Earth delegates stating that Earth will succeed from the, the Federation if the conversation of membership for the Zindi continue. Despite Archer being brought back to restore the glory days of the UFP, one of his major acts, uh, a first major acts, is looking to take out a founding member. Uh, it, it's, it's times like these that Archer misses the good old days. Episode 2, What History Remembers. Um, this is a very somber and slow episode. It takes place only a few days after episode one. Mm -hmm. The episode opens with Archer recording a message to be sent to T'Pol. Uh, he counts some of the major events of the Zindi Crisis, as seen in Season 3 of Enterprise, uh, until he gets on the topic of Trip. His voice falters, he apologizes, then he deletes his message, never sending it. Uh, he goes over and pets Trip, the dog, uh, and then, uh, uh, and then leaves. Uh, the the Palace de la Concorde has a relaxation room that he has remodeled into a Zen garden. As he wanders lost in thought, he stumbles upon Verena just sitting alone, seemingly in meditation. Uh, perhaps some sort of prayer. She opens her eyes and motions for him to join her. After several minutes of uncomfortable silence, she finally speaks up, asking what troubles him. He mentions that the trouble of, of Zindi membership has brought back some uncomfortable memories, and yet he can't help but think that those were better times than now. After some back and forth, Verena switches the topic to why Archer is single and doesn't seem to have a love life. He feels incredibly uncomfortable with this uh, question and inquires why she cares. She says that her culture and religion is based on the, uh, the natural balance of the self. That in order to be who you are, you must learn to share the weight with others. Um, he, he, uh, he says that, he, that there was a time when he considered uh, settling down and having a romantic uh, fling, but uh, that time is long past, and from his experience, it never ends happily. Meanwhile, Tala reaches out to her father for advice. Not only is she distressed, but due to her uh, uh, you know, small uh, telepathic powers, she can sense an unease in Archer, who she knows is friends with her father. No response comes. Uh, Yan meets with several Section 31 agents who say that they are going to leak the news about Earth's potential withdrawal in hopes of causing a uh, panic that may sway Archer to resolve the matter quickly with a pro-Earth stance. 
They suggest that Yan up security until it's over. Yan tells them he agrees that the Zindi shouldn't be joining, but riling up people is only going to make Earth look bad and put him and Archer in danger. Episode 3, uh, Radical Ideation. Uh, this, uh, in contrast to the previous one, is a very tense episode. It takes place two days later. Um, protests are mounting against the entire Zindi membership situation. Archer has requested that Eyes be put under extra protection and then not let them leave the premises. Uh, Eyes is annoyed at this at first, but understands. Uh, Archer, along with Tala and several staff writers, uh, attempt to throw together a speech that will quell the protests as soon as possible. Meanwhile, Sander travels to uh, Vulcan to have a personal meeting with T'Pau. Uh, the meeting goes well. They talk about the current situation as well as the issues on Vulcan. Uh, T'Pau stares the conversation to a hypothetical, if the Romulans were granted membership, then many Vulcans uh, would have the same reaction as humans. Despite their cultural and biological differences, people are people, and they hate change. Unbeknownst to them, Yan had slipped a listening device into Sandar's luggage, Section 31 is listening in, and they find out that Sandar is in, act in actual fact half Romulan. Uh, Gretcha is told to advise Archer that there are reports of infighting between the Zendi factions by her Ryan Handler. Uh, she disagrees, saying that there is no evidence of such things uh, from her own reports. She's told to fabricate evidence until uh, until until time in which real evidence will come by, which will be soon, and another threat is placed on her. Uh, while giving a speech before the protesters, there is an assassination attempt on Archer's life by a newly formed version of the uh, the xenophobic uh, pro-Earth uh, terrorist organization Terra Prime. Chaos erupts as the racists of Terra Prime rile up the already anti-Zindi humans. Uh, Archer is evacuated for his safety, but the situation continues to escalate. A mob breaks into the Palace de la Concorde, heading straight for eyes. Episode 4, Blind Faith. This is an action-heavy episode. It's Air Force One in Star Trek. Awesome. <laughs> uh, Yan and the rest of the security uh, team attempt to get Archer into safety, but he refuses, instructing them to go get eyes. Uh, the Wildup mob has weapons, not just basic weapons, but phaser rifles, etc. They were supplied. This was planned, and Archer knows it. Uh, fight ensues. Archer doesn't stand on the sidelines. He's shoulder to shoulder with his security team, taking these guys out. Uh, Verena, due to her pacifism, is taken hostage uh, uh, with the other with some a few other delegates. Eyes is being moved to the emergency transporter system to get them out of here. Tal is hit by with a flashbang grenade that aggravates her visual impairments, making her temporarily blind. She has to use her telepathy in order to get around. Uh, Gretcha seals herself in her room, and surprisingly, no one tries to get in. She sees a text message, uh, uh, you know, uh, on her uh, on her computer that uh, that uh, uh, that basically is a quick translation from Orion to Latin to Telerite that says "quid pro quo." Uh, and attached is a file containing information that shocks her that we will find out later. After Archer gets separated from his security team and same for Eyes, they find themselves alone together and the main one's being targeted. Archer does his best to defend Eyes, though someone does get a lucky shot. It's not fatal, but Eyes is injured and needs immediate care. Eventually, the mob is repelled. Everyone has made it out alive, but some are injured. Everything looks ramshackled. Archer demands to know what the hell... Uh, happened and how these people were armed and what they stole. Uh, Yan promises to look into it. The episode ends with Archer sitting in a tattered office, exhausted, only to be approached by Gretcha, who gives him the bad news. Admiral Tilik Shran is dead. Does Archer ever go, get off my starship, Air Force One style? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's taking place in a building in Paris, France. 
So no. <laughs> However, I, I do have plans for him sometime in the future uh, in, in a particular thing in season three to potentially be kidnapped uh, while he's on Paris One, which is Air Force One for the Federation. So um, it would be uh, it would be funny if that was the case. <laughs> yeah. Episode five bloodlines. This takes place about one week after the events of episode four. Kala mourns the passing of her father, her estranged father, but her father nonetheless. Archer tries to console her, but it doesn't seem to help. She requests leave to return to Andoria to see uh, see to the funeral. Archer grants this request. Upon investigation, it becomes clear that the faction uh, that a faction of Zindi extremists, primarily reptilian Zindi, uh, found a way to bomb the ship Talik was on. Uh, it, it was it was planned for days, which is why Tala's message never went through. Because there is now a major faction using violence to show their displeasure, Zendis can't be uh, considered for Federation membership because political unity must be maintained for prospective members. Uh, Archer demands uh, that this be considered uh, this be reconsidered as the UFP was built from the ashes of conflict and war. Uh, they cannot let this get in the way. Uh, Gritcha has a feeling that this was all set up by the Syndicate. Meanwhile, Sandar returns to Earth, finding the place a mess. Upon entering his office, he finds graffiti that says, Under the Raptor's Wings. Uh, he asks why no one cleared it out. Farina says that she wanted him to understand the horror that the rest of them went through while he was on Vulcan. She then asks uh, what, what that is supposed to mean anyway. Sandar sidesteps the question, just says that it must have to do with a political enemy on Vulcan. Farina questions why a pro-Earth mob would care anything about a Vulcan, a Vulcan politics. Sandor seems uncomfortable and j just makes a comment that logic and humans rarely ever go together. Uh, Yan calls a meeting with some Section 31 agents and proceeds to give him a piece of his mind about the attack, saying that he was nearly killed and so was everyone else. Uh, Section 31 merely says that it was the best interest of every party involved. Yan demands to know who. They refuse to answer. Uh, they, they tell him that Sandar can be blackmailed. They began the part that would distress his emotions, but if Yan could push him all the way, a non-Earth member asking for the Zendi thing to be resolved without membership will surely nip this in the bud. Uh, episode 6, Eyes on the Prize. Uh, this episode is entirely from Eyes' perspective. Uh, takes place during the week gap between episode 4 and episode 5. Eyes returns to New Zendis on the request of Archer, hoping to keep them out of harm's way. Uh, we get to uh, meet the newly unified Zendi people and the rest of the Eyes, uh, uh, rest of Eyes' hatchmates. Uh, the Zindi have uh, cast off all remnants of the sphere builders that they once worshipped as gods called the Guardians, and have had been hard work trying to coexist on a single home world. Hopefully this time it won't get blown up like the last one. Uh, the reptilians and the insectoids are the ones treated with the least respect since the civil war happened as a result of their actions. But those that can set aside the racial tensions uh, do so to come together as one people. Meeting with the Zindi Council, Ice explains the situation with the United Federation planets. They say that President Archer is firmly on their side, but he seems to be the only human that actually is. The Council will explain that the reptilians are the ones that are most adverse to joining and believe Archer to be guilty of war crimes. Um, because he destroyed a reptilian base uh, during the episode of Zadi Prime uh, way back in Season 3 of Enterprise. Eyes assures them that uh, that Archer was merely doing what he had to do decades ago, that any of them would have done the same thing. He's a new man, and besides, no insectoid ever remembers that time anyway, as they're all in a new hatch cycle as they only live 12 years. There, there, is, there is a vote called of whether the lit eyes return, uh, send another ambassador, or cut all ties with the UFP entirely. 
uh, the results will be uh, uh, be tallied in a few days. Uh, during that time frame, Eyes uh, hires a private investigator to do some digging on reports of illegal shipments in the reptilian sector. After some digging, Eyes and the investigator find out that a reptilian faction is dealing with the Orion Syndicate, transporting drugs and the like. Uh, Eyes then stumbles upon evidence that the situation that resulted in the death of Telix Shran was orchestrated by the Syndicate. Without waiting for the results of the vote, Eyes leaves News Indus heading back to Earth. Episode 7, Desperate Times. Takes place directly episode 5, at most a day has passed. At a Federation Council meeting, Eyes barges in and presents their evidence. Archer is about to call for sanctions on the, on the Orion Syndicate when he gets a call to turn on the news. Being broadcast across all the UFP is a live interview with the Illyrian captain that Archer had stolen the warp coil from all those years ago during his desperate mission to deal with the Zindig in the Expanse. And uh, the interview paints Archer in a bad light, showing the depths of hell he swam through that was once considered heroic, now it is turned against him, and reports asks why a man who would willingly destroy the lives of an ordinary transport ship uh, to destroy a one-time enemy would then be willing to make merry and, and eat bread with that said enemy, only a few decades later. This spirals into a publicity nightmare, and Tala is still gone on Andoria. Varina attempts to help Archer quell the issue, but now the families of the victims of the Zindi attack are up in arms about the situation. Gretchen, meanwhile, is trying to figure out the best way to come clean about her Orion connections, knowing that it may cost her her life, but things have to be set right for Tala and Archer. She gets in touch with her Orion syndicate handler, tells them to never contact her again, and sends them a lump sum of gold-pressed latinum, most of her life savings. She then goes to Yan to request extra protection. Archer is stressing out. Verena tells him to relax in his quarters. She will get everything all sorted uh, for now, and she will address the public tomorrow. When Archer returns to his quarters, he finds a message waiting for him. It says that no one in his cabinet can be trusted and that he is alone. Uh, Yan has, uh, has, has, had sent that message, but it was the last straw for him. He, he may not see eye to eye with Archer, but there's no denying that he was a hero to Earth Army the war. Uh, that, that message would hopefully get Archer on the trail and not be detected by, detected by Section 31. Yet, for now, uh, he told them that, uh, Section 31 that he blackmailed Sandar, but he is actually lying to them. Episode 8, Lonely Souls. This is a breather episode from all the drama. Uh, much like episode uh, 2, it is slower and more somber. Tala returns and immediately begins to help Archer and Farina out with the publicity crisis. A, pl a publicity stunt is made where Archer gives a speech uh, about the needs of the many uh, at the, the site of the initial attack of the Zindi. In the speech, he brings up Trip uh, and his sister who dies in that attack, which causes him to, uh, causing him distress and he feels is exploitative, but he knows he can't not do this speech, so he goes through with it anyway. Uh, Gretchen comes clean to Tala about her connection with the Ryan Syndicate and says she knew about her father's death before anyone else. Tala is at first fiercely angry, but after a cool-off period, she understands. She asks for Ai's evidence, and she, along with Gretchen and Yan, began to work together to figure out uh, what ties everything together. Sandar visits Ai to discuss with them the animosity the humans show the Zendi. He explains that his people experienced such a thing before, and in some cases still do. He knows this all too well, and the, and he promises that no matter how things turn out, he and Vulcan will be all, will stand side by side with the Zindi. Archer and Farina share an intimate moment in the Zen Garden and find their way into bed. Archer confesses that he never really tried with romance because his career was priority. Then, when that began to shift, 
Crip died, and he saw uh, saw the misery T'Pol went through, which eventually tore Archer and her away from each other. He is afraid of getting close, and chooses to be the job because he knows that history wants that anyway. That's all history will remember him to be. Uh, Verena explains that history will tend to itself, and regardless of the past, present, or future, Jonathan Archer must be Jonathan Archer. Flawed human, regardless of what history says about it. Episode 9, Spider in the Web. This is the big plot-heavy episode where everything begins to really converge. I want this to feel like uh, season four of The Expanse, where the penultimate episode is like this big explosive episode, and then the finale, while big, is much slower, much more, uh, much more character beats rather than plot beats. Uh, Terra Prime protests continue across Earth, combined with the issues of the Archer publicity stuff, is turned into a message of anti-Archer more than anything else. The new Terra Prime isn't exactly like the old one. Not all aliens must go away or anti-Federation. Uh, they seem to be a single-issue group. No Zindi. With the Orion Syndicate information, Gretchen, Tala, and Yan figure out that Terra Prime is actually being bankrolled. They are a puppet for someone. Gretchen and Tala think, uh, uh, think the suspect is obviously the Orion Syndicate, but Yan knows better, but he doesn't tell them. Uh, Archer orders a swift military strike on a suspected Syndicate ship and a blockade around Orion's space. The official Ryan government complains, causing more issues that Archer knows he will have to deal with down the line. The raided syndicate vessel is taken by, in by Starfleet, and they find evidence of the Zindi Reptilian faction and Terra Prime affiliation. Sandor has a conversation with Archer, saying that no matter what goes down, he has alienated a lot of his voter base and the friends he has in neighboring nations. That uh, uh, there has to be a compromise, one that preferably benefits the Zindi because of the problems he made the eyes, but he fears that the UFP could uh, very well tear itself apart due to the tensions boiling underneath the surface. Yan is given the assignment to kill Gretcha and blame it on the Zindi in hopes of drawing heat off the Orions for Section 31. Episode 10, season finale, the threads that bind us. This is a season finale, but not everything is wrapped up because uh, unlike a lot of modern shows that wrap everything up and conveniently at the end of the season, I want the main <laughs> conflict to actually feel like the main conflict and continue on for several seasons. Uh, Sandar and Archer draft a proposal to bring Zindi, uh, the, uh, Zindi in as a Federation protectorate, so not an official member, uh, but still get some benefits. They will, uh, you know, they will get some benefits membership, but not be fully... A member, and that will hopefully quash the major factions that are against full membership. Large donation will also be made to the relief fund for the victims of the Zindi attack as a humanitarian gesture. Uh, Verena and Archer go out on their very first official date. Uh, Tala has a uh, heart-to-heart with Gretcha about the death of her father. Yan commits suicide, sending a suicide no note to mm. Archer. It explains that he made a mistake in his past, mistakes that he thought were right then, but over the past month or so, he's begun to see those mistakes uh, for what they were, that there is a spider in the web of the Federation, and that despite what they claim, they are not looking out for the best of us, for the best of the Federation, but rather looking out to better themselves. Eyes agrees to the plan to accept Zendis into the, uh, the United Federation plans via projectorate status. Archer makes a deal with I, saying uh, he will fight to admit Zindi, uh, admit Zindi in as a full-fledged member, hopefully within I's lifetime. But right now, there is something darker he has to deal with. After a celebration ceremony, Tyler and Archer reminisce about her dad and talk about the future of their administration. The episode closes out with Archer about to go to bed when he receives the emergency personal call from T'Pol. She simply says, Trip is alive. End of season. Oh... Oh, that's a good cliffhanger. <laughs> Future seasons? Uh, I So I want, I'd preferably eight seasons. 
I, I want mm-hmm. to, because canonically, according to that little historical pamphlet we see in the Mirror Darkly, Archer served as Federation president for eight years. So I want, I want to chronicle his entire time as president. Um, but the thing, the big things I want to tackle are Section 31. They go from being this rogue, semi-official organization in Enterprise uh, to being well-known in Discovery to being unknown again by the time of DS9. Uh, they even have their own official badge in Discovery. So I want to explain why this happened, what people like Archer, who are very pro, you know, traditional Federation uh, qualities, would allow this to happen. Um, and and I also want to reaffirm, just in case people didn't understand DS9, looking at you, Discovery writers, that Section 31 are the bad guys. Uh, I also want to bring in some beta canon stuff, such as undoing Trip's death via Section 31, because that was done in the books. Okay. Can you give us a, a bit more information on that? Yeah. Uh, so in in Enterprise, in the season finale, Trip dies for no ex- reason whatsoever. These pirates were after Tran and his daughter, um, and uh, they got on board the Enterprise, and they were going to head for Archer, and for some odd reason, Trip tricks them into the engineering section, connects two wires, and blows up that entire section of the ship, including himself, because... It's the series finale, and we gotta go out with a bang, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, everybody thinks that Trip's death is fucking dumb. So, the death was undone in the beta, beta canon, which in Star Trek, you have Alpha canon, you have Beta canon. Alpha is anything on TV, that's considered canon, period. No matter, even if it contradicts itself, which it does a thousand times, it's still <laughs> it's still canon. Beta canon is book uh, any non-show non, uh, material, uh, or movie material, so books, comics, etc., uh, they um, they said that uh, Trip basically got blackmailed by Section Thirty One to be an undercover agent, um, and he had reconstructive surgery uh, to look like a Romulan, and when it infiltrated the Romulans during the Earth Romulan War. There you go. Yeah. Uh, but him and T'Pol after the Romulan War, him and T'Pol end up getting back together and having babies for a bit, and then not, and then whatever. But like, I I I want to, I want him to still be alive because I thought that was dumb. <laughs> the way they killed him. Uh, I also want to see what Archer is like in a relationship. Uh, always felt like this was never fully explored, and while there were many false starts to a relationship for him, they were never followed through. I also want to look at the fact that the Zindi, who were responsible for Star Trek 9-11, um, you know, that, that was a very blatant allegory, that's what Season 3 was about, um, went from that to future member of the Federation, as seen also in Enterprise, when uh, they, he gets a flash of the future and he finds out that the Zindi are now members of the Federation. I want to find out how that process went, because almost assuredly, there's some people who were very much against that, because 7 million people died. Even though they were manipulated in making that attack and it was a false flag operation, that doesn't matter. Still, 7 million people died, and they're going to be blamed for it. So there, there has to be something there. Um, so my major plans are Season 2, Undo Trip's Death, and Explore Vilusian Culture. Vilusians were a species introduced in TOS. Uh, as a background detail, they, they didn't even really have a name. Um, and, uh, Star Trek Online, the, the MMO actually named them. And then one appeared in Lower Decks. But we know nothing about them besides the fact that their skin is purple. So I want to explore their culture, explore how they work. 
And obviously, Verena is our all eyes in there. Season three, a major conflict with the Orions. Um, I was already building that in season one. Gretcha is killed uh, by the Orion Syndicate. Season four, presidential election. Um, and Sandar retires and his Romulan secret is exposed. Uh, season five, I want to delve into Tala's uh, familiar legacy, you know, being the daughter of this great man. Uh, and what that does to a person. Um, and I also want to delve into Andorian culture, because Andorian culture is this really weird thing where it's all over the place. We don't really know a whole lot about them outside of the fact that they live on a moon, and it's an ice planet, and that's it. And then there's some, like, minor cultural stuff that come from extra material, like books and stuff, that got folded in. Um, but... Um, just to give an example, in, um, I think it's Data's Day, I believe, where Data makes a mention that, uh, Andorian marriages involve four groups of people. Many people have taken that to mean different things. Some people believe that, or, uh, that means Andorians are polygamous. Some people believe that that means that, uh, Andorians have four genders. Um, and the books went full-blown, full hog into the four-gender thing, and, but Enterprise never acknowledged that, and we had major reoccurring Andorian characters, um, and in some ways contradicts it, but then Lower Decks introduced an Andorian character that has the naming conventions that, uh, align with the, uh, Andorian four-gender thing from the books, so I want to go in and I want to look at Andorian culture and flesh it out and fix you know, I want them to be polygamous, but I also think the four-gender idea is actually a cool idea, so I may include that as well. So I just want to actually set that down in stone and fix that. Season 6, Zendis finally joins the Federation. Eyes dies at the age of 13, fulfilling the lifelong dream. Uh, season 7, major Tholian border issues. Uh, season 8, Archer exposes Section 31 year, years after, uh, after years of gaining evidence. Rather than destroying the organization, the UFP embraces it. Archer resigns in protest. And those are my general overview. Fantastic. We, I'm really liking the sound of this. Uh, really good, great details, world building. Uh, I love the, the George Washington comparison to Archer. That makes so much sense. And I'm <laughs> kicking myself for never thinking of that before. Yeah, when, when I was just... I, I I was just looking at it going, this this makes so much more sense once mm. you once you bring that in. Because you have a guy who canonically becomes a politician, and you're like, why would he go into politics? He seemed to genuinely dislike it. There there's an episode um in season four of Enterprise that is all about him having to be like the this um uh go between between the Andorians and the Tellarites, and he's very clearly uncomfortable with it. And it's just like, why would this guy in the golden politics? I'm like, he was forced into it, just like George Washington was. And that makes immediate sense when you think about it. Any other major questions, point of discussion? Would other Star Trek characters show up in the show, like Come Enterprise or possibly uh, little cameos to, to f future characters? I obviously brought in T'Pau, mm -hmm. who is an Enterprise character and a TOS character. Um, I don't know if you remember her, but um, she was... Uh, she was at a uh, the, the, a mock time. She was the uh, she was the Vulcan that presided over Kirk and Spock's famous fight. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, she uh, she also appeared in Enterprise. Um, Funny. Yeah. Uh, and Kirk has this like line about how she's the the one and only like political leader on Vulcan to refuse a, a Federation Council seat, and so I wrote that in. That's nice. Mm. 
obviously Topolin trip in the second season. I would like to bring in Malcolm Reed as uh, maybe like Fleet Admiral of Starfleet or something. And I also want to touch on the fact that canonically making him buy. That's what I would do with Reed. Hoshi, I always imagine she just kind of retired uh, and became like a, 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 a linguistic school teacher. That's my that's nice. always that's always my picture for her. According to a not part of canon kind of so there were multiple slides for the historical records in the mirror darkly shown on screen and the part that wasn't shown for hoshi said that she died at the result of uh kodos uh which is um uh i forget the the requiem for a king or something i, I can't remember the name of the episode of tos but it's the one where uh, Kirk and his family used to live on a planet that was uh, uh, that that basically had martial law declared, and this guy declared himself like uh, uh, basically a, a dictator, and to save supplies, he would um, commit mass executions. And basically, that unaired version of that scene said that she was on that planet, which implies that she was killed during Codus's uh, mass executions. Uh, but that takes place way later. Uh, you know, after this, anyway, so it's not like that matters, but I wouldn't mind, like, maybe implying that she went there or something. Um, Phlox, I wouldn't mind bringing him back in some capacity, maybe just as a quick cameo. I always imagine he's, like, working in, like, uh, the, uh, interspecies medical exchange. That's what I always pictured him doing. Nice. <laughs> um, poor old Mayweather, the, the character that everybody forgets exists, because the writers forgot he existed, too. I'd probably make him, like, a, uh, transport captain maybe he took after his uh parents and uh retired from starfleet and just became uh, uh like a uh a freighter captain uh so m maybe there's some some stuff i can do there but no my main focus is archer and then undoing the the thing with trip and bringing into paul because if we're going to be honest those are the three characters that actually got major development in enterprise because mm -hmm. they were they were trying to redo the kirk spock mccoy thing uh, and as a result, you know, a lot of the other characters are very um, stale in some ways. Some of them do, do get some interesting developments. I do like Reed's arc in Season 3 about how bringing the military on board a Starfleet vessel basically made him superfluous, and he feels that way. Um, and, uh, but, I'm not, but in a post-United Federation of Planets where the military and Starfleet are now one, I don't know if... Um, if I could really de dig deep into that, but I would like to explore his bisexuality. Um, but outside of that, it's mainly Archer, T'Pol, uh, maybe a little bit more of T'Pau, Trip, and then obviously my own invented characters. Mm. Um, maybe some legacy characters. Maybe like there's a maybe we we talk about uh, Noonie and Singh, you know, off working on his uh, his uh, androids or something, you know. Nice. But like. To me, that's that that qualifies as nostalgia bait, and I don't think it really it really matters to me, you know? Yeah, fair enough. I think uh if I made like a DS9 thing, which by the way, like this is only one of my many, many Trek pitches because Trek is one of my favorite <laughs> franchises. I'm sure. Yeah, but like um this is one of the most overtly nostalgic. The one that is outwardly the most nostalgic is the DS9 one. Because I always wanted to know what happened to these characters and we just don't talk about it in modern trek anymore so um but like um i don't i don't know if i would want to like full on nostalgia here's cgi flux for no reason you know 
um like they do in mandalorian that just feels cheap yeah and uh it is an attempt to win people's hearts and minds rather than actually tell the compelling story i think there is an interesting dynamic for archer to be president and i think there's an interesting dynamic for these two estranged friends who care deeply about this one person finding out that he came back that he's not dead uh after that, I don't know. After I resolve that, I don't know if T'Pol and Trip will even still be in this show. You know, because um, it's it's Archer's thing. Anything else? No major questions. Just want to give massive uh, congratulations for how really well detailed this is. Uh, <laughs> you certainly created a hard act to follow, but I shall endeavor. <laughs> I I mean, I tried my best. I don't, I don't think it was as detailed as I wanted it to be. And there's a lot of notes that I skipped over. That's just like. I don't know a goddamn thing about politics. I'm a creative writing student. <laughs> so yeah. uh, consult expert when writing real scripts. Yeah. For now... Consult George Lucas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, for, for now, dramatically, this is what sounds best. But probably from an actual real political standpoint, this is complete gobbledygook. <laughs> you know? Um, but uh, no, I, I try my best. Um, and yeah. in, there are a lot of other pitches, like uh, the Orion Syndicate stuff. That's actually a. Uh, I decided to fold in. I actually had an entire pitch for an Orion Syndicate show that I was like, what if I tied some of my ideas in that into this? Because that would work in a political setting. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but like I said, many more pitches. So we might do Star Trek again sometime in the future. But anyway, you have a, a very unique take on Star Trek that I wasn't expecting when you told me about it. So mm -hmm. without further ado. Alrighty. So my series is called Star Trek New Life. Uh, taking a cue out of Strange New Worlds, I like the idea of taking something from the iconic, you know, catchphrase. Mm -hmm. So for a good long while, I was thinking of how we could do something kind of new. Like, what I like about DS9 is it's not a typical, you know, Enterprise Voyager ship that's exploring the universe. It's this one location with a nice balance of exploring new places. But at the end of the day, it's focused on that one station and the, the character interactions between each other. So that's something I wanted to go for. Uh, for a while, I was tempted to do with a show that was set in between original series and Next Generation, because that's kind of a massive you know, century gap. You know, I thought it would be interesting to explore, but as time went on, I came up with more ideas depended uh, you know, on people's knowledge of Next Generation. I was like, no, okay, I'll set this towards the tail end of that. So this is more set around the Next Generation movies, which is concurrent to the later end of Voyager and DS9. Mm -hmm. So in the end, we brought, I brought this down to a prison orbital transportation station called the Hollow Hold. Interesting. Because mm. I thought it'd be quite interesting to explore how the justice system of the supposedly utopian future could work. And this way we could have little you know, parallels to the real world and deeply, sadly, deeply flawed uh, prison system out in the real world, yep. particularly America. No offense. Oh yeah, no. I I <laughs> I work on a uh, this is this is a personal thing, but I work on a documentary uh, about the absurd uh, seventy seven percent recidivism rate we have here in America. Mm. You're the highest in the world. It is ridiculous. Yeah, the stuff like the full capacity deal isn't there. Yeah, I've got under CCA. So I I found that rather interesting stuff. I thought it'd be interesting to have a series a Star Trek series that could have kind of have little nods to that. Like, would those kind of things still be around in the, in the utopian future? Or would they be more shuffled to the side? You know, everything's perfectly fine. Just don't look into this tiny corner of our operation. 
So I'm going to do things uh, a little different to yours. I'm going to open up with the opening two-part of the episode, which will essentially set up the premise, give a little nod to the characters, and then go into the characters, a more detailed depth into the characters themselves. Mm. Part one, we begin in Sector 001, our solar system, year 2373. A Federation prison transport facility is about to take off from Earth after returning to be refitted and give its officers some long, some deserved shore leave and exchange of security officers, plus the top off of some inmates. Mm-hmm. Its official designa- designation is Penal Transport 5099, but over the years it's gained an infamous nickname, whether from the inmates or from the guards, it's unknown. But nowadays it has an official title of Hollowhold, a mass pyramid, pyramid-like space station, home to tortured souls who feel like outsiders to the rest of the universe. And those are just the prison guards. <laughs> its upstanding warden... <laughs> I appreciate the laugh. Its upstanding warden is Pierce Kelly, late 60s, decisive, doesn't suffer fools gladly, but represents a respectable and warm figure to his close colleagues, and none more so than his newly raised in ranks first officer, Bahul Patel, a more younger, sardonic, and closed-off man who's quite literally a man out of time. Patel's previously a lowly officer on the infamous ship of the US Federation, the USS Bozeman, a Federation ship from the 23rd century that was trapped <laughs> for 90 years. I'm glad you get the reference. That was trapped for 90 years in a time-looped pocket dimension, as Kyle seems to obviously know, is from the episode Cause and Effect. The one with Kelsey Grammer there for one minute. Oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard people talk about, why don't we ever get like a, a, a Frasier in Space show where it's, yeah. about, it's about that ship? <laughs> yeah. Uh, sadly, we don't have phasia in this show. <laughs> and no time at all seemingly passed for those within. For them, they thought they were just gone for a week, until they're saved from their predicament by Enterprise D, leaving Patel and the rest of his fellow crewmates nearly a century past their own time, many of their families and loved ones dead or moved on without them. Patel even has nightmares of being stuck in that loop again, not knowing if these are repressed memories from a decade stuck in the loop. Feeling like a ghost, Rahul spent a good while feeling driftless in his life, before doubling down on rejoining Starfleet. He is a sardonic, sarcastic person, but this made him even more closed off, more short-tempered. But after some hard work, he managed to just barely keep within Starfleet after a few tumbles by being transferred to the prison section of Hollowhold, where he became very close to its warden, P.S. Kelly. Uh, and working his way up, he is now first officer. So after several scenes of establishing the, the, the wardens, the, the, the guards, saying the goodbyes to Earth, taking in the last uh, sunray, they're about to take off until emergency subspace alert arrives. A message confirming one of Earth's greatest fears for the past six years is about to happen. The return of the Borg in their second invasion temp as seen in the opening of Next Generation First Contact. Now, I told you that's my favorite yeah. movie, so you could bet I was definitely going to find a way to fit that in. So all remaining Federation ships are called into arms to defend a sector against the cube, while civilian or facility ships are delayed, their takeoffs are delayed. Except, for reasons Patel cannot initially understand, he won't be able to for a while, it's a thought that will keep him up for the good chunk of the first season, Warden Kelly opts to ignore this cancellation, neglecting to inform the rest of the prison officers and continues to take off, reasoning if they go off soon, they can escape the attention of the Borg in time. Yet, despite this hasty and even possibly treasonous takeoff, it's too late. For the whole hold is caught right in the middle of the Borg attack and the Federation first line of defense slap bang in the middle. Despite not being intended for great mobility or mass battle, the whole hold 
is well equipped with defences and weaponry to repel any would-be prison break-ins, and as such survives the initial onslaught of attacks, but it's quickly becoming clear it's pushing its luck. Receiving so much damage, it ultimately results in the death of Warden Pierce Kelly, crushed by falling debris. Eventually, the tide of battle is turned, for, as for the second time in his life, Rahul Patel's life is saved by the late arrival of Enterprise E, organizing a strategic comeback attack on a Borg cube, destroying it. However, this is just the beginning of Hollow Hole's trouble, which is good because we've got a whole series yeah. to fill in. Uh, one of my favorite things about that opening of First Contact is that for some odd reason, the Defiant is just not standing a chance until you know the fact that the Defiant was designed to deal with the Borg. Uh, but we mm-hmm. got to have the hero moment for the Enterprise to save them. Uh, and you're like, but, but, but the Defiant was designed for this exact purpose. Its head engineer, one Benjamin Sisko, had his wife killed by the Borg. I believe he's kind of pissed off at them. Um, and so uh, it, it always cracks me up every time I see that. But we still get the line, tough little shit from that. But anyway, continue. Nice. Oh, lady. So, just as it's destroyed, the Borg cube releases a spherical escape pod that generates a temple storm as it dives to Earth, eventually breaking the time continuum, sending it back to Earth's past, radically altering the present. Which, of course, will sound very familiar to our Star Trek fans. Uh, for those who have watched First Contact, and why wouldn't you? It's a bloody fantastic movie. So, those who have watched it, we all know what's going to happen next. The Enterprise, uh, they travel back in time. They're safe by being in the eye of the temple storm. Massive adventure. Picard goes through some personal trauma. He fixes things. Uh, all good. Mm-hmm. And by all rights, the Hollow Hold, just like every other Federation ship in that battle, should have been erased from history and then later restored. However, for the Hollow Hold, nothing will be the same again. As the reasons they're going to take a long time figuring out, somehow this time wake affected the entire station, triggering a wave of temporal anomaly energy coursing through it until they blasted out of that section, arriving into another place, the wrong sector, or quadrant, or possibly even reality. This realm are uh, a realm of shifting colours with specks of light hanging suspended in the air. And from the distance, a black swarm is blasting towards them, creatures not recognised by the database, bugs the size of horses, skin like mismatched jigsaw pieces comprised of different species from the looks of it. These aggressive creatures are ripping their way into the ship. So with the facility's coordination system absolutely ruined to hell by the Borg battle, the emergency holograms are failing to come up, and a good portion of people dead, including the warden, uh, this forces Rahul Patel in the shitty circumstance of becoming the emergency warden, organizing attempts to stave off the attacks from the creatures. And in the episode's first cliffhanger, he's granted a choice. Unlock the sealed bunker doors to the inmate section of the station and sacrifice the inmates to the swarm, giving the crew time to escape. Patel is forced to wonder, does he have the right to throw away the lives of these murderers and traitors that he is responsible for? And then with part two, we're doing the time warp. We're going right back Ooh. to the beginning, except this time from the perspective of the inmates. One in particular, Raylan, a trill who's an accomplice to the Marquis and imprisoned for the murder of a Cardassian and Federation officer. Uh, more on that backstory in future episodes. Along with her, the other inmates are a Cardassian spy, or as he claims to be, just a civilian who just happened <laughs> to blow up a ship, <laughs> blow up some colony ships. A Ferengi who just can't quite seem to keep to his promises of smuggling in goods onto the ship. A Betazoid blackmailer doped out of her mind to dollar powers. A sentient crystalline mass that's 
terribly so that's genuinely sorry of the about the people he killed and many others we'll see in the future but as for now we're we're seeing this mainly from the perspective of Valen. uh she calls herself a freedom fighter uh and she's very uh, much of not afraid to take a to speak her mind and take action so we're seeing the events of the, the Borg attack from mm-hmm. her perspective, and when they're forced into that other plane of reality, uh, she knows full well, oh shit, with these creatures coming in, these in the guards have to help us or we're fucked. So she breaks out of her cell, she hacks the communication system, and she's essentially shouting at the inmates, giving her coordination of what's happening on their side of the field. This snaps Patel out of his state as he realizes that if you were to throw the inmates into the slaughter to protect himself and his crew, he be no better than the criminals he's kept on lockdown. So with coordination between the two, he saves the inmates by giving them temporary freedom and they fight off the swarm, restoring full power, somehow triggering once again the wave of energy seen as last time, teleporting them out of that plane of reality. Regrettably, they're not back on Earth. They're nowhere near Sector 001. They're in the Gamma Quadrant. Oh, damn. Yeah. Oh, that ain't all, folks. So as the rest of the series, basically every... 28 hours or so, the, sh- the ship will just randomly teleport to another side of the universe. So is is it zigzagging across the universe? Alpha Quadrant, Beta, Gamma, sometime a totally different plane of reality where time is fucked up, your thoughts create matter, as seen in that uh, episode of Next Generation. Mm-hmm. So Patel realizes, oh, everything's changed now. What do I do? I'm a. I've been fussed in suspicious, and do I stick to the way things are supposed to be? So he agrees to meet with Valen. They meet for the first time, and this begins a initially very rocky, but quite soon close bond between the two. And Valen's pretty much in his face that hey, you can't stick to the old power dynamics. This isn't going to work anymore. We need to be more on equal footing. But who was like? Forgive me, but it's hard to trust convicted felons. You know, you've murdered people. How do... I can't trust you just yet. This is going to take time. So they agree to, to work together. He'll try to control things from the top of the ship with the other guards, or she'll try to control things more now extremely restless inmates. Raylan's closing statements tease that very soon, if things don't reach an agreement, that if Patel and the guards stick to the view that the inmates cannot be trusted and are t- treated like scum, like they have been for a while, soon they're going to realize you're not the ones locked in here with us. Mm. And boom, that's a uh, two-parter all set and done, basically setting up the core premise of the show, a uh, prison ship that's kind of like Voyager. It's far, far away from the hold of the Federation. They're left to defend for themselves. Uh, and something, so bear in mind, I've only seen, let's say, Roughly the first half of season one of Voyager, so maybe it's too soon for me to judge. I thought that show had a fantastic premise going into it of like oh, yeah. Federation and the Marquis working together. From what I've seen so far, there's not really much tension between the two. Like right Whoa. after the first two-parter, uh, again, this is just my perspective. It just looks like the Marquis kind of just adopts quickly. Yeah, everybody agrees with you. Oh, yeah, right. uh, yeah, everybody agrees. I, to quote the great Ronald D. Moore, the moment Chakotay put on a Starfleet uniform at the end of that pilot, the show was dead. Yeah. Uh, because, like, that that ruins the entire point of it. Uh, but no, that, uh, I'm getting, so, recently, there was, uh, Apple TV did an adaptation of Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. And Foundation is a very, very hard series to adapt, and if you've read it, you will understand why. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of scientists just talking at each other while things happen. 
Um, and you know, it, 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 it's fairly, it's not an actual story story. It's more of a people witnessing a story. So they had to come up with ways to get some of the events that happened to actually be interesting and on work for TV. And one of the things they did was a ship that's used as a weapon, uh, in one of the later books, uh, basically its navigation is all out of whack and like every about 12 hours it transports to someone random uh so it could be in the middle of a star or it could teleport in the middle of a planet or it could just teleport in the middle of nowhere or it could teleport to next to the capital city it can go anywhere and it's completely random and they have no control over it i thought that was a great idea and something that could have been explored more if they had bothered they didn't in the show the show's all right but it's it didn't explore that concept full this right here that's a good idea nice thank you <laughs> Yeah, um, also cosmic horror bugs. That's that's creepy. Oh yeah, I, I really want to go into cosmic horror with this series. You'll hopefully see more of that in the in the upcoming episodes I talk about. Just general, are they perhaps connected to... I know they have no name in official canon, but in beta canon, the bluegills, they're the, uh, they're the insectoids that took over Starfleet in season one of TNG. Uh, no, this is very different. They do not belong okay. to the main universe at all. They are... Uh, a turn left of history if you will okay interesting yeah okay and also nice doctor who reference there <laughs> i had to <laughs> as, as hopefully uh viewers who will stick on with, with learn doctor who is my favorite thing ever so there'll probably be a lot of references coming up <laughs> so stay tuned <laughs> continue on i am intrigued okay so that's the core premise of the show and as the series goes mm -hmm. on a lot of bonds will be formed uh Rahul will find allies on, and enemies on both sides of the bars, and he'll learn things maybe not as black and white as he was led to believe by the Federation, as Valen is very up in his face about, hey, this system is kind of messed up. Have you noticed there's more aliens and humans in here? Uh, don't you think it's weird we're always at full capacity? Uh, mm -hmm. For the formation system, it doesn't really seem to be working, does it? And he's like, okay, how do I fix this? Uh, so now going more more in depth into the characters. So Rahul and Raylan will be the main focus of the show. But I think Star Trek's biggest strength is that it is an ensemble series. You've got a lot of characters of different backgrounds, beliefs. Just Mitch matching them together always creates very intriguing interactions. So I've got a lot of uh, character ideas here. Some are more important than the others, but I like the idea of just building up the ship more of making it uh mm -hmm. feel with regular characters some will just in episodes will just be in the background others will be a lot more focused on them so Rahul Patel uh very smart but super difficult guy uh he comes off of course as rude short-tempered dismissive towards staff and incarcerated felons alike however over time through his exposure of the inmates in particular Valen he softens and develops genuine empathy for his fellow passengers and even shows off a witty and sometimes goofy sense of humor, emitting he puts on a more scornful attitude as a kind of coping mechanism following his forced departure from his own time uh, when he emerged from, from the Bozeman. Uh, he stutters when he's suddenly fussed in unexpected scenarios, much to his embarrassment. So he always begs people like, hey, don't tell guys I do that. But he always persists, always pushing through. Uh, in a way, the current situation, he, it really excites him. It reminds him of his old days traveling aboard the Bozeman, another Federation galaxy explorers. And whenever he gets a chance, he keeps insisting on establishing first contact with new species and dating them into the logs. 
He sees the hollow holes, uh, random teleportation as a unique chance to continue the Federation policies, much to the dismay of other crew members, especially his new first officer, Ben Jordan, more on them later, who keeps insisting, hey, we are not an exploration ship. We're a prison vessel. Uh, there is no reason to overstep our role any more than we already have to. Mm. And Rahul is like, okay, we'll do it. And then he just goes behind Ben's back and does it anyways. So Valen, self-proclaimed freedom fighter, a trill woman who was rejected from the symbiosis process, uh, turned accomplice of the Marquis, seeing she greatly empathized with their troubles, uh, seeing a Cardassian and Federation treaty super unfair. Uh, and after there will be an episode, I'll focus more on, on the why, hows and whys of how this happened. She does eventually murder a first Starfleet officer and a Cardassian. Strong-willed rebel with a chip on her shoulder after the host rejection, but also insightful, caring, dutiful, and moral. In short, everything the typical Federation officer would not expect from a, as a condition, Cardassians would love to dub them terrorists. She's not above yes. withholding information or manipulating things to get an advantage working her way into meeting with the new warden with an aim to improve conditions for the inmates in a now super-damaged prison ship. Uh, but she does not expect to greatly enjoy Patel as, as she does. So it's a, it's a rocky friendship that might possibly turn into more into the future, uh, despite the fact, as I mentioned earlier, she's not afraid to point out Patel's flaws or that of the ships. The host rejection process is something that hurts her deeply. She wanted to be a part of something greater, uh, so being rejected from the host process, it, it hurt her in a lot of ways. Perhaps that's why she turned to Marquis to want being part of something. Uh, and hopefully, with luck, she'll find that bigger part of something. You know, just that something more with this, you know, new but bizarre situation she's in. On to Ben Jordan, the newly, the, due to circumstances, suddenly pushed up to second in command. Seen as a bit of an overprivileged buddy, son of an admiral and tormentor of the prisoners who sees this role as beneath him, but is still adamant of following the regulations. Uh, a lot of inmate, a lot of guard rumor is this is a position his father landed him in after failing his academy. He often butts heads with Patel on more radical decisions, like exploring the locations to arrive in and giving the prisoners more freedom, as Ben keeps insisting they stick as a prison ship and not live out some weak fantasy to be an exploration starship. As more secrets are coming out about uh, why prisoners are really there, about the secrets within Hollow Hold itself, Ben's rigid belief in the status quo is shaken, eventually making his attitude more agreeable and his more idealist approach to situation, helping balance out Patel's more indecisive and positive attitudes, leading to two former rivals developing a closer, if occasionally rocky, friendship. But uh, as we'll find out later, Ben's not without his own problems, and season two will undergo a much more dramatic character arc for the guy. On to the resident practitioner, Dr. Maureen Platos, Italian woman in her late 40s with a taste for grand, almost macabre aesthetics. Her hair a constant fizzy mess. The bags under her eyes have bags. And one for medical candidates is stuffed with important, genuine wine from Earth because, heaven forbid, she have a drop of simulated alcohol garbage the replicators put out. So she has previously served on several starships for decades to the point of thinking this job is way beneath her leading to many rumours she was assigned to this position as punishment. The truth is, though, she applied for this position. Years as medical staff on ships that constantly loses its crews to new ways of dying eventually twists Plato's optimism, as she felt no matter what she did, good, good people kept dying on her, turning her into a secret alcoholic to numb the pain of her helplessness and gifting her cynical mindset to the point she wondered 
what the point of the, all this is. What's the point of helping people if they're just going to die? Uh, her relationship with her family became a lot more rocky to the point of severing, and Maureen eventually applied for the position upon Hollowhold with the kind of toxic belief that the need for her would be much more minimal and that even if people were to die, they're just criminals. She, she, don't, she doesn't think she's going to lose sleep over it. But naturally, the unique situation the ship is put under forces her under far more stress than anticipated and forcing her out of her shell. She imposes herself in as she reconnects with uh, the guards and then later on the prisoners, uh, finally seeing them as more as actual people, not just no but blank nobodies. And through the station's travels, she rediscovers her previous love of stellar exploration and helping others, starting the hard, long journey in recovering from her alcoholism and regaining a vigor for life. On to uh, another prison guard, Brock a Klingon. So as you know, the Federation has uh, very few Klingons enter its Starfleet holds, uh, and Brock is an even more bizarre oddity, as he was born and raised in a Romulan prison camp, as we see in the Next Generation, <sighs> Next Generation 2 part of Birthright. So I always found that episode quite interesting uh, about how you've got these Klingon prisoner of wars who later come to peace with their Romulan guards and children are birthed and grew up in that environment and that peace, but it's at the loss of the heritage. You know, and mm-hmm. I found it rather interesting how the episode doesn't necessarily give a right, right or wrong answer on if Worf did the right thing or not mm-hmm. in uh, essentially breaking in and teaching these young children hey this is what the real universe is like this is our heritage we are warriors not prisoners uh and he later later on several of them agreed to go out with him so i thought it'd be rather interesting to explore what happened to one of these characters uh and we find out he occasionally regrets leaving his home uh especially when later on in the series the secrets of his past and the prison camp's existence makes him feel more of an outcast Rather ironically, considering where he came from, he becomes a prison guard, essentially putting him back where he started, just now on the other side of the bars. So he has a rather unique perspective on things. You know, he's, despite the stereotype of Klingons being aggressive, he's actually much more agreeable to the inmates to the point of being super dangerously naive uh, and manipulated by them. But his strength and unique perspective becomes a, a massive helping factor in the hollow hole survival. Uh, and he'll develop relations with the, with the inmates, which will help the ship overall. And one relationship in particular will become one of the most important in his life. Another Klingon, a prisoner, Caracas, a much older, grizzled Klingon woman, an aggressive member of a renegade group, the Empire, that after a failed coup on the Federation was imprisoned, as she was a firm believer in the old glory days, believing the modern Empire is now far too soft. Start of the series, she starts out utterly hating everyone. If you look at her too badly, she will break your arm. Uh, and then she doesn't hate anyone more than uh, Brock, the Klingon guard. First, she sees him as a, a race traitor. And then later on in the series, when she learns about his actual upbringing, she sees him as an absolute aberration to everything she believes in, an insult to her entire race. But despite this super antagonistic Stark, Brock is fascinated by her because he doesn't really have anyone else around here. He can learn about his heritage from. Uh, he sees her as the only link he has, really, to, to what he should have been, you know, if he was brought up in the, in the true empire. And eventually, Krakis realizes this herself, and a mutual understanding kind of comes between them. Like, I dislike everything you represent, but you're the only person on the ship that I can even remotely connect with. So she eventually becomes a kind of mentor to Brock on their Klingon heritage, and she develops a very fierce, protective attitude to him, 
with uh, a lot of people comparing him to like the son she never had. Onto <laughs> this is one of my things. <laughs> not gonna lie, Mister Plum, uh, a genderless. Well, initially genderless. He he later chooses to go with the he pronouns. He's a member of a, a rare endangered new species. I've come up with this series. A short mole-like species that have no eyes of their own, but have this like telepathic ability to hack the ocular vision of others within their vicinity, uh, which a lot doesn't take a lot Federation members to realize can make him a very useful tool for spying on prisoners mm-hmm. uh, and it proves to be a useful, useful tool in preventing prison breakouts. His blank face appearance and abilities make him very off-putting to others, even fellow guards to the point they're kind of wary of him, of his appearance, of what he can do. So they kind of keep their distance. But in reality, Plum is a super sweet, very lonely person. He's very loyal to the Federation for essentially saving his life, that of his species. Uh, and he wants to do anything in his powers to, to help him out. So when he's pushed to a, a crappy prison role, he's like, I'll do my best. As you can probably guess, Mr. Plum is not his real name. He revoked his previous name and chose to go by Plum in tribute to the first Earth food he was gifted to. And is very insistent on having a title, Mr. Be Used, when addressing him. <laughs> on to uh, another prisoner. This is a crystalline carbon-based life form, Devaka. There's always got to be one uh, Star Trek character in the show, but apostrophe in the title. This is my guy, Devaka. Uh, so there, as I said, carbon-based life form, this hulking size, diamond leaden bean, who is a willing prisoner after he... Well, rather, they killed members of the First Contact Federation squad due to a massive misunderstanding. Uh, it nearly started a conflict, so when they realized what was going on, they opted to serve their time as penance to fix relations between their species and the Federation, essentially becoming a symbol. Uh, despite a very off-putting look and, and their voice, they're actually a very friendly being who provides comic relief for the series as they try and occasionally fail to understand like human and other species' social skills and he wants to help others, uh, which is a rare mindset for a prisoner. Uh, and he forms a very close friendship with Mr. Plum, given they both have unique uh, ways of seeing things, from a, both from a metaphor and a literal standpoint. <laughs> is he at all related to some of the other carbon-based life forms we've in, we found in Star Trek, either the Tholians or uh, the actual crystalline entity? Um, oh, that's interesting. That he could be a cousin in a sense, um, yeah. perhaps not an exact match, but uh, that perhaps the diamond doesn't fall t- fall too far from the cave, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just I just think that that's interesting because um, because uh, you you know the TNG episode the chase because of the the that all most of the species in the galaxy are humanoid and it, it was used to explain budget constraints, mm. uh, but. Uh, there's the very few times in Star Trek where you encounter one that's just fucking bizarre. Yeah. Uh, like the Tholians or like the Crystalline Entity. So I was wondering if there was any connection there. Yeah. Uh, I like your idea about the Crystalline Entity because one of my favorite episodes is the one uh, where it died. The, mm. what's it called again? Uh, Silicon Soul. That was it. That's one of my favorite yeah. ones. So that could be interesting. I have a going of a connection with it later on. We have Liv. That's a minor character. So basically, she's just a skilled herbologist in prison for legal development and smuggling of drugs but later on when the replicators are failing they're like Patel is like hey we should probably use her skills to grow some food otherwise we're we're kind of screwed 
Liv is a human hybrid, a very closed-off individual who somehow formed a strong bond with Ben that tempers his more hot-headed nature, will really grow into her own as the story progresses, as she comes out of her shell and influences the lives of both the crew and the inmates. Mm. Al and Tov, the married men, members of a species where marriage results in a blood bonding, uh, linking them spiritually and quite literally, separation means death. So when Al is sentenced for murder, his husband Toth volunteers to be confined to prison with him to save both their lives, essentially, and to stick together. Uh, and it kind of brings in question, you know, it kind of taps into the theme of sins of the father, as it were. Should the sins mm. of one person reflect upon one of their loved ones? So they're quite a sweet couple. Uh, Al is the killer. He's quite close-minded on why he did what he did. And Tov, he's quite a sweetie uh, and, and an engineer. So later on, when the ship needs help, when the station uh, is really falling apart. Patel is like, uh, look, we're, we're running low on people, official guards who know what, what to do to fix it. Let's get this guy to help us out. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it starts kind of dialogue, the inmates becoming part of the crew as the series goes on. On to Morkan, the, Cardis- the Cardassian. Uh, officially, he's a civilian who fought back against colonizers as a treaty. The Cardassian government does not recognize him as an agent, nor does he claim to be. Which naturally, with Cardassians, does it put it puts it up for debate if he really is a spy or not? <laughs> uh, he's an utter masochist. He's very cheery. He offers advice on how to best torture himself and other inmates. He's kind of like the Joker in Dark Knight. Was like, oh, never start with the head. The victim's all fuzzy. Uh, he puts on a funny font, like, ah, oh, my dear so and so, how nice to see you again and to serve delightful prison gruel. Uh, but all the while, he's as a Cardassian does, he's secretly plotting his own takeover of the vessel, uh, helped in part by a mysterious old man who shows up only to him. More on that guy later. As faction cells are formed within the inmates, he forms comprised of more brutal members of the section. As he builds himself up the hierarchy of the prison complex, using his cunning and guile to take out any rivals, as well as fear mongering tactics to target the others in line, stating that they'll be the first to go when the officers feel that the emergency rations are low, that the only way to survive and see your loved ones again is to join him. Either take control, or these cells will become your tomb. He's going to become a big part of the finale and later, uh, and a story line later on. But basically, I love Cardassians. They're such bastards and. Yeah. It, there's also some interesting stuff with them. You know, they're not, it's not completely black and white. You've got s- some genuine uh, good people in there who love the families and all that. So, you know, I, I wanted a chance to do a Cardassian, especially uh, as you pointed out when we talk about this during uh, sessions. This this takes place around the Dominion War. You know, the Cardassians joining them. So he's essentially out of the loop in that. And then in one episode, when Hollow Hold reappears, it's right in the middle of the Dominion War, uh, and like. Uh, okay, I know we imprisoned Morkan, but let's get him up here so he can pretend we're his prisoners so we can get out of this jam so the Cardassians don't blow us all to hell. Yeah. Narf the Ferengi. So he plays himself off as a ringleader of a mass crime ring. He's promising inmates, he has connections to get him get them anything they want smuggled in, in, of course, return for favours like Platinum. But the truth is, he's a scapegoat, a patsy. His sister was the real mastermind, with him acting as the frontman, due to Ferengi's, uh, their absolute misogyny regarding, you know, female mm-hmm. members of the species. So, when the nets close on, on him, he takes the fall. He expects his sister to have rescued him uh, by now, and he keeps telling himself, oh, something's happened to her, she'll come any time now. Uh, but over time, he accepts the fact, 
my sister betrayed me. And to be honest, I never really had my heart in this. So in this new unique situation, he kind of does some soul searching. He's like, I think my family put me up to this lifestyle. I want to be something new. So people like give him hobbies to do. Uh, <laughs> he's kind of find his, his purpose in life as well. <laughs> mm. Next on to Carla, a Bajoran junior officer who just got assigned to the hollow hole just before it was sent on its erratic journey across the universe. Uh, with tensions between inmates and officers boiling even further, as Carla not being known to inmates yet as a new guard, uh, she volunteers to go undercover as an inmate to regulate them from within, passing on crucial information she learns to Patel and the other guards. Uh, which is a bit of a tricky situation for her, given her Bajoran background. You know, she knew many family members and friends who were in prison camps. So this gives her a perspective. She empathizes with some of the inmates, uh, and she kind of questions living conditions. Uh, is that her family name or her given name? Because, uh, you know, uh, Bajoran switched those around where your family name comes first. Let's go with given name. Okay. Also, fun fact, since we're talking about Bajorans, uh, my first girlfriend was called Kira, and she said she was named after a Star Trek character, and it took me only till last year to realize, oh, that's who that character that character You're is named after. Yeah. yeah, that's a good example. Norice is her given name, Kira's yeah. her family name. So gotcha. uh, I know people get occasionally get confused, Having being the big old DS9 guy that I am, I'm used to it because... A lot of the characters are Pachorin. So, um, but yeah, I, I was just wondering if it was family name or given name. Yeah. Uh, she forms a friendship in particular with Brock, the Klingon, given their own unique history with prison life and their family, you know, connections with prison. On to uh, Daphne, a telepathic prisoner, uh, a Betazoid. She's a sly elderly lady, total diva. She was in prison for using her telepathic powers to give her an edge in massive blackmail across the Federation before she was eventually caught and brought in and drugged during imprisonment to dampen her psychic powers. Uh, she just loves to tease people, to antagonize them. She's a fabulous dad, like fabulous, very much that kind of person. <laughs> Rather like uh, Deanna's mother, because <laughs> I yeah. guess she's got telepathic powers. You just love to act like you're better than everyone. <laughs> Get away with it. As the station loses its supplies of drugs and has to lower its servings to keep her, uh, she regains her powers bit by bit, first sensing emotions, before in secret gaining her powers, uh, her mind-reading powers, 100%. And she discovers Carla's secret as an undercover officer, but she opts to keep it hidden from the other inmates to keep the officer alive and in order to get a favor from the office, officers down the line. Uh, all the while, she's playing all the multiple factions within prison. You know, she's playing any possible side to get full advantage. But when conflicts do boil over, she's conveniently not around when a fighting takes over. And she's just in the corner doing her nails, basically. <laughs> and just keeping a keen eye on whoever the winning side is. Uh, onto Spanos, an imprisoned Vulcan, one of the last members of the by now ancient and decaying remnants of the Galactic Army of Light, the terrorist organization led by Spock's half-brother, Cybok, as seen in Final Frontier. One of the best Star Trek movies, he said sarcastically. Uh, his father was one of the people, you know, recruited. You can't see this, but I'm doing air quotes. Recruited by Cybok with his mental powers. Uh, and he's teaching. He learned he passed on to his son, Spanos. So Spanos is quite a uh, openly emotional-wise Vulcan, which is quite rare. He becomes a figurehead within a prison block, forming his own faction. You know, a lot of followers praise him as his messiah with his attitude and teachings. Uh... The truth is, he's got a bit of a secret that he first tells to Carla, and then it's later revealed by Daphne. 
Uh, Spanos is in fact an undercover agent recruited by the Federation and planted within Hollowhold to investigate the suspicions of corruptions and abuse within the prison station. Uh, when he figures out Carla's true identity, uh, he helps her have a jam. He gets in contact with her to organize a cover story for him to fake his deaths in the cells so he may join guards. Uh, before that plan could go through, uh, Daphne, she needs a win to boost her reputation pretty much within the prison cells. Uh, she outspanos to everyone, and he is massively mutilated by Morkin, and he's just barely saved to death from Carla. So while he's recovering in the later seasons, uh, physically, he proves a massive help in giving advice uh, on, how, on how the guards should go about things, and he helps uncover the massive secrets held within Holocold. More on that later. And then onto our final character, one of the big players is Cuboid. A member of the Q Continuum uh, who debuts in the app named Q Entrance. Because I'm keeping TNG's tradition alive of going with a pun <laughs> for every time a, a Q yeah. character shows up. <laughs> so I can go more to him later when we, when we talk about that episode. How is he in there, though? Because he could just step himself out. Oh, no. So, yeah. Sorry. He's, he's not a prisoner. He shows up, uh, ah. let's say, in the third, fourth episode of the series. They're in a the Gamma Quadrant or some other far-off realm. And he, we just see him on a monitor just casually walking up to them. He pokes his head in through the window, like, phasing through. He's like, hello? You're quite far from home, aren't you? <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. He's a cute guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got some episode ideas. None of them are very detailed as yours. Uh, yours was very serialized. Mine does has a serialized element to it, but it kind of goes back to the old yeah. Star Trek vibe of, you know, each episode is its own little fun adventure. Some are not character heavy. Some deal with new sci-fi concepts and the like. I'm imagining about 15 episodes and in no particular order, I can give you guys a brief synopsis on, on some of them. I Spy is a slice of life episode entirely from the perspective of Mr. Plum or to be more precise, from the perspective of multiple characters as he's seen through their eyes. So it's kind of like Peep Show meets Star Trek. Mm. Uh, he's using his optical hacking powers to keep an eye on things, to stop a breakout from happening, and also keep an eye on, on the guards, which leads to an awkward conversation about them, about the right to privacy. Uh, and he reveals, oh, but Warden Kelly told me to keep an eye on you guys to update him what was happening. And they're like, oh, okay, that's kind of weird that the dead warden we used to respect told you to spy on us. That's a bit of a red flag. Episode ends with them having a sweet conversation with Devaka about them beef, both being, you know, rather rare species across the universe. Uh, Q entrance. Uh, so during the latest universal hop into uh, this new realm, the crew of the Hollowhold is greeted by the unusual sight of an essentially dressed old man casually walking up to the monitors. Uh, and he warmly <laughs> greets them to uh, about how far, far away they are from the from the actual homes. Uh, he reveals himself to be a member of the Q continuum, and to diss himself from the nuisance that is the Q, who has been regularly been cited to bother mankind in the past, particularly the crew of the Enterprise. Uh, they take on the name Cuboid as a bit of a joke, uh, and he talks about how he's avoiding the nuisance that is the current Q civil war, as seen as Voyager. Uh, he just prefers to live life his own way, and he, he wants to give a bit of a helping hand, but due to his continuum's rules, he can't directly interfere. So he very much plays devil advocate in just saying, oh, I can't help you, but uh, you didn't hear this from me. If you go that direction, you'll get some help. So mm -hmm. he's a very sweet guy. He's like a, a nice old grandfather, John Hurt type character. Uh, and while he can't directly send them back home, he promises to pop in now and then to help them out. Nah, what a nice guy. Meanwhile, 
Morkan starts receiving prisoners from a familiar strange old man who's offering help on... Oh, I'll help you out of this. Just do me one teensy-weensy favor. Kill everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, another episode. In a new solar system, the whole ship is inflected with pitch-black blindness. Everyone's blind. Everyone's panicking. Uh, already boiling tensions reach critical point as Patel and Raylan try to control things from their respective sides. All the while, an infestation of the ship is happening for mysterious creatures who wish to taste everyone's eyes. And then it turns out these creatures aren't inherently uh, anti- antagonistic. From there, they're a rather unique species who are blind themselves and kind of emit uh, a blindness to everyone telepathically. And they were just investigating the ship. So before they're murdered, peace talks are established. Uh, but during this episode, a desperate Mr. Plum, uh, with everyone else being blind, he himself is blind. So he, it's kind of like... Uh, desperately turning the radio dial. He's trying to hack any possible remaining eyesight he can have until he finally does find a source, a source he cannot identify as an officially recognized guard or inmate, uh, an individual who seems to be an unidentified cell who's dozing in and out of consciousness. Who is this person? Why aren't they officially recognized to be continued? Uh, Echo matters. So attempts to prove improved range of the transporter leads to an accident that reveals a rather disper- disturbing secret that during the rematerialization sequence traces of DNA cells and memories are left behind in the buffer zone the latest accident accidentally releasing these leftover echoes if you will merging them in several gestalt beings leading to a flurry of conflicting ideas from the guards on how and if they have the right to stop these new creatures as a lot of them contain fragmented memories and personalities of the crew members because you know Every Star Trek show needs at least one teleporter accident. <laughs> so I've got to oh, get yeah. that off the list. <laughs> Cell Division. This is a murder mystery episode. A low-level inmate is beaten to death, leading to Patel investigating the murder. Uh, however, his suspicion that the killer may come from within his own command of officers uh, threatened to tear the whole chain of command structure apart. Uh, with help from Malin and other inmates, uh, the killer is revealed to be Ben Jordan, the first officer, who, when interrogating the inmate, lost control and went too far, uh, killing him. So Raylan is like, hey, this guy needs to be punished, but Patel concedes that locking up a guard as a prisoner will just lead to Ben getting slaughtered by the inmates, and that the officer's faith in each other will be broken if they were to learn about this. So despite Raylan being very much against this, Patel agrees not to reveal what Jordan did, but he's like, Hey, I've definitely got my eye on you now. You royally destroyed everything Federation stood for. Uh, when we get out of this, your career is in serious jeopardy. So this puts Jordan in a new light. He goes through some soul searching after this episode as well. Uh, Drowned Islands. Uh, arriving in a new plane of reality accidentally enhances Daphne's and others' telepathic powers, linking the whole ship into one hive mind, essentially. The resulting fusion of memories and secrets forms new bonds while also destroying many others. Uh, so this would be the story where Brock's, you know, Klingon and Romulan prison upbringing would be revealed to others. Mm. Uh, I love the idea of, like, you know, Star Trek visits a lot of hive minds. I thought it would be cool if one of these characters was suddenly made into one. You know, what would that yeah. be like being a kind of mental gestalt being? Phantom Guards. Good news, everyone. The station's emergency backup holograms are back in line. Bad news. They're damaged and ever so slightly unhinged. We may be in trouble. Uh, so this kind of gives us a fun nod to the Doctor from Voyager. Kind of, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be necessarily 
the the same model. It could be a new one, but the idea is it's got that same you know idea of an emergency and hologram of, of a medical officer of the captain will pop up. Uh, but these holograms, they're damaged. They're taking control of the ship, so they have to fight to get back to it. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the holograms is of the late warden, P.S. Kelly. So at this point in the series, as more secrets of hollow holds come out, uh, people's faith in the old warden is kind of shaken. So at first, Rahul Patel is super happy to see the hologram, you know, because he greatly respected P.S. Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as people point out, he's essentially trying to reconnect with a dead man. Uh, and over time, he kind of vents out his frustration about this position he's put in, about everything he's learning, about what's really going on at Hollow Holds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I, I, like, I like the idea of playing around with holograms, about people kind of using that as to air out their grievances and stuff. Yeah. Uh, cover up. The Hollow Hold crashes onto a planet that's doing its pre-industrial age of its growth. And with just 27 hours before their ship is sent to another location, Dukfu has to clean up the mess they made before their present affects the natural growth of the planet. So it's be a kind of fun episode. They're kind of scrambling about to fix up their own mess, essentially. Uh, I liked episodes like No Vine Self, The Next Generation, where you know we see things from, from the perspective of a planet that's you know that's kind of like Earth's past. It doesn't know about other life out there, and we see through their eyes uh, visitations from you know people beyond and all that. Mm-hmm. One of the best ones of those was Voyager's Blink of an Eye. It's really late into Voyager, so you probably haven't seen it, but I nah. highly recommend it. Really? Yeah. Just a few more episodes. Uh, this one I'm quite looking forward to. Metal Stitches. Uh, this is a Borg story, because as I think I made clear with the opening, I love me some Borg. Plus with some time travel shenanigans thrown in. As basically, mm. as the as the station is being chased by a Borg vessel out in the outer reaches, everyone kind of slips a time track. They wake up on their future bodies, as converted Borgs. So this kind of plays around with all good things from TNG about how Picard, you know, mentally he was transported back and forth across different time zones, you know, his his physical state in different time zones. This is based, this is kind of the same premise. Uh, every so often, the crew are switched back and forth between their present selves being chased by the Borg and their future alternative selves where they are Borgs. Uh, so they have to learn what they can from the Borg timeline to evade being captured in the present timeline. All the while, the Borg uh, hive mind is taking over them in both realities. So I, as I said, I love the Borg, and I thought it'd be cool to yeah. go from that perspective of people realizing what has to be one of the greatest fear in the Star Trek universe, becoming a Borg. Uh, mm-hmm. And during the alternative timeline, they find out that there's a secret cell that the Borg have found out themselves and are unlocking. So in the end of the episode, after figuring out what to do to evade capture and escaping the Borg, the crew members are left with the knowledge that there's a secret cell out there in their version of the ship. Uh, could this be the person that Mr. Plum found out earlier in the series? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Infestation. What seems like an ordinary, if uncomfortable, infestation of bugs within the station quickly turns into an absolute nightmare as a large centipede-like creature makes the station into its home. It's burning its ways through the walls, twisting the inmates' minds, reducing them to an animal-like state. All the while, the guards don't believe them about what's happening. So it kind of brings up this, let's say, theme of ignorance about people's, you know, about the living conditions, about their mental states. Uh, it's kind of more creepy, disturbing episode. Other episodes, ideas, I haven't really formed anything solid, but a lot of them would focus on Carla doing her undercover stint. 
others will be like flashback episodes to certain characters like Valen uh, about her joining the Marquis and Spanos' upbringing with the Zealot father before joining the Federation. Uh, stuff like that. So nothing too set in stone. Mm-hmm. Like I said, nothing as uh, detailed or serialized as yours. These are just little fun pitches I want to put out there. It'd be the kind of show where like, other writers would join in and pitch their own yeah. uh, concepts, basically. Basically, the through line for like, the series, the arc, as it were, with tensions rising and... Q-Board keeps popping in, he helps people out, but to tell and the others are like, mm, something's off with this guy. Maybe he is like the other Q. He seems to be lying to us about a lot of stuff. Patel and the others discovered there is more to the holohold than there should be. There's secret rooms. They resemble like surgical suites. There's encrypted data the late Warden Pierce Kelly kept. Uh, you know, Patel is starting to doubt the true purpose and the morality of the facility. Uh, towards the penultimate episode, it's revealed what's really going on about the true purpose of the ship. It's a part of Section 31. It's a, uh, The guards, there's just a mass cover-up. The, the ship is doing dirty work. You know, It believes it's doing the dirty work for the Federation without its consent, without its knowledge. Uh, it's studying inmates, as it were. It's, tr- it's doing its own secret smuggling. It's doing its own secret research. And Patel and the others, they're naturally rather shook by this they realized they were picked as federation outsiders you know they're people who are out of time they are people who are from misunderstood species and upbringings you know they are made to be disposable cover-up for the for the prison ship mm-hmm. uh going back to the secret cell they're now in on where it is on the ship this hidden 708 prisoner you know inmate 7708 they figured out through some en- energy traces that whoever it is, they're being kept alive by life support device. Uh, they're wondering if it, if that person could give them more clues on what Section 31 is really doing and if it has any connection as to why they're being transported randomly across the universe. Mm. I think I forgot to mention this earlier, so my bad. But during the opening two-parter, when they escaped the realm they were in, uh, there were specks of light in that realm and some of them were pulled in with the hollow hold into the main universe and has been stuck with them throughout this whole time. Uh, and they seem really to be, throughout the series, they're growing bigger and brighter. Uh, q keeps warning them, uh, you need to destroy these things. Uh, they're going to result in an outburst of energy. They'll make supernovas look weak in comparison. Uh, I like you guys. I know we've been blown up, so you should blow this thing up first. But Patel, you know, he wants more time to gather information on what's really happening before he neutralizes them. Uh, unknown to him, though, Q-Boy's deal with Morkan and the other inmates, it's reaching a hole. He's offering them advice on how to overcome the security systems. And now it's reached uh, an absolute head in the, in the finale, Seek Out where they lead a mass coup. You know, it's, it's an uprising of inmates against, against the guards. The guards being holed up within their command centers. Uh, things are looking real bleak. You know, carnage is unfolding. Q-Boyd, he just removes his previous, you know, disguise, and he just fully embraces being this sinister little creep. He's basically the inversion of the Q we know from TNG, in that the TNG mm-hmm. we saw was uh, outwardly antig- antagonistic, but secretly he wanted to help uh, Picard and the others out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Q, Q-Boyd, he puts on airs of being a sweet old man, all the while he's just manipulating people, because with all this great power, it bores him now. You know, He could change <laughs> anything with a click of his finger, but that's boring. He's just much rather manipulate people, talk people into doing things, into killing each other, and he just loves watching the dominoes fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when ho- hope seems all lost, but Valen, you know, she's grown very close to Patel and the officers during the course of this year, uh, and she, she has her own natural 
rivalry with Morkin. You know, he's a Cardassian and she she despises everything he's against. And she's part of the Marquis. He tries to have her killed, but she survives and she rallies a rebellion within the inmates. She gets the help of Devaka, Narf, Alan Tov, and surprisingly towards the end, Caracas, the female Klingon, who's like, I hate you all, but Morkan has no honor, so I will help you take him out. They disrupt the attacking prisoners from within, giving the guards an opportunity for them to trick them, and finally defeat the coup, uh, giving Morkan uh, heightened security. Outside, the energy specs are reaching critical mass. Whatever's about to happen, whatever they're going to become, is going to happen within the next few minutes. Now, fearful, Q-Boyd is begging Patel to destroy them, assuring they'll cause mass destruction. Patel is like, well, hang on, you've got mass power. Why don't you do it? Unless you can't, can you? This is the one thing in this universe you can affect. So you're trying to get us to do it. So the way it works is whatever these these specs are, they're kind of like, it's kind of like polarizing magnets. The, the Q can't mm. affect it. They have to get other species who are kind of, let's say, on the same wavelength for these specs to destroy it. So, so Patel is like, if you want to destroy these things, then I'm going to let it happen because we, we, we don't trust you. You know, it will be probably be in our best interest if they do, if it does go through whatever's going to happen. So what initially looks like the resulting implosion of the specs will destroy the hollow hold. Eventually, the harmful energy subsides as the imploding specs reveal the spectacular sight of life. A brand new life form comprised of, of fluxing energy. And the crew realizes the specs were essentially energy eggs. The realm they were in were acting as a kind of suspension field, holding back their growth into the hollow hold. You know, accidentally punched through that reality and pulled the eggs in with them into their main universe where they were given the energy needed to grow. Uh, so when they figure out what's really going on, Patel is absolutely enraged about Q-Boy's manipulation to destroy a, no- uh, destroy a new life form. Uh, Q-Boy admits that the realm the Hollow Hold visited on its first leap was created by the Q-Continuum when they discovered the new performing species, uh, they detected that their powers would rival their own. So they created a kind of, since they were unable to destroy them, they created a suspension realm. Interesting. Yeah. So it's too late for now for Q-Boy to prevent the birth of the species. He teases, he's just going to have fun tearing the people of the hollow hold apart in revenge, atom by atom. His form is rupturing, twisting his human facade. He and the other Q adopted to generally be accepted by humanity. It's being stripped away, revealing something of impossible Fluxing shapes and dimensions. Because the Q, the Q, they're like, I want to go creepy with them. I want to go cosmic horror. Yeah. You know, a little eldritch. You know, they're beings of mass power, but they always pretend to be human. That's a facade. I want to I want to show, like, just a glimpse of what they could really be like. Uh, but Patel, he's not phased. He's like, you won't kill us. I, I know you'll get this weakness. For all, the, all your power, the reason you and the rest of the Q and every other great, powerful, ancient, yet childish force from the corners of the universe keep coming back to us little life forms. You're bored. You need us for entertainment. And with us, you have an entire unpredictable circus of entertainment all to yourself. Are you really going to deprive yourself of that? And Q-Boy just breaks down into demented laughter. And it's like, I'll see you soon, my toys. I could have been an actor, but probably best I retired. <laughs> <laughs> so the ending of the, of the finale, it's the mutiny has been repelled. And Patel agrees to better conditions for the prisoners as he realizes that clinging to the old ways of being a prison ship in a situation where that should not matter in this new situation, uh, he, he figures they have a potential to be not what the, what the Federation and the universe defined them to be 
together, if they work together, they can be something new. Uh, so with that all sorted, they finally track down the embassy signature to discover the hidden prison cell of inmate 708. Open it inside, they find an unconscious half-naked man. Brown hair, the beginnings of beard, hooked to a life support machine that has been keeping him comatose and supplying him with nutrients this whole time, while another machine has been registering changes to his biosignature. Uh, checking the machine's record, they discovered a man was moved onto the hollow hold the very day before the Borg attacked of Sector 001, causing Patel to wonder if the secret arrival of the prisoner was why Kelly was so adamant on leaving Earth that his imprisonment was an unlawful secret to the Federation themselves that Kelly wanted to escape attention from. They unhook the man from the machine, and he gains full consciousness for the first time in ages, warily taking everyone in as Patel asked a question on everybody's mind, uh, who the hell are you? With effort, but attempting to appear confident, the man stands up into the light, revealing to the audience a possibly familiar, but now much older face as, as he responds, Hello, I'm Wesley Crusher. Can somebody fetch me a shirt, please? Holy fuck. <laughs> yeah. I'm a madman. I'm bringing Wesley, the boy genius, back. <laughs> Come at me. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. I was really looking forward to that. <laughs> He went off with the traveler. You always wonder yeah, what happened to him. Exactly. Okay. So, low backstory. So, when I was coming up with this idea, my intention all along was to have a secret prisoner who would reveal to be an older Star Trek character. So, I kept going back and forth on who I could do. I thought about Thomas Riker. I thought about Law. Uh, whether it be a Mirror Universe uh, duplicate or something like that. Nothing really fit. At one point, I just joked to myself, oh, I'll do Wesley because I assumed. Uh, <laughs> The online reaction to that would be pure hatred. But then I started thinking about it. Oh, this would actually make so much sense. His story is basically unfinished. I feel like early Star Trek was building a big story of him about him becoming his own man. And then he just got dropped in and out of the series as it went along. And got a really anticlimactic ending. An ending not even acknowledged by the movies. So with him, I saw a ton of potential on what such a character with an unfinished story, but an established one, could bring to the series. My characters are basically a bunch of losers thrown into a situation that much more qualified people like Picard should be in. So it just made sense to me to throw in one of the outcasts of the main series into the show, see if we can kind of level it out a bit more. It would also help my characters get a glimpse at what happens if you leave the Federation. If you're like Wesley and you go rogue, follow your own path. Would you find freedom or lose your purpose, be driftless across the galaxy? Is there a way to do both? And so, if my story were to be real, I'd hope to give the character and Will Wheaton the redemption they deserve. So we're mm. going to go into that now. So that's season one mapped up. Uh, that's the cliffhanger. Season two, it finally opens on just what the hell is going on with the hollow hold. Just a catch-up. Last time we saw Wesley Crusher was a Next Generation episode, Journey's End. The one of the Native American vision quest. Why? Because it was the 90s. So, think of that as you will. Uh, he was the boy prodigy turned disgraced Federation cadet who left after being granted an opportunity to travel and to learn, develop his new powers with the mysterious and powerful entity uh, he knew as an old friend, the Traveler. Uh, years later, in the real world, you know, our world, uh, people who paid very close attention to the wedding scene in the film Nemesis would see the grown-up Wesley sitting next to his mother with a deleted scene showing Wesley talking to Picard about his upcoming position aboard the USS Titan, implying he later does return to that universe after exploring reality and rejoins the Federation. So the question is, what happened in between those years? 
What happened to make him change his mind and return to the Federation? Here's my take on it. At some point with his travels, he got separated from the Traveller and was later found by the Federation on Earth. The Federation, or more specifically Section 31, take a very keen interest in a human who is exposed to multi-reality travel and capture him. Seeking to transport him to a blacklist site in secret with the Holohold to further study any biological changes made to him to try to discover the power of the Traveller. For centuries, Federation ships have been victims of godlike beings. Some believe it's time to even the playing field. However, during the Borg attack of Sector 001, when a Borg sphere slipped back into the past, the resulting time wake triggered an inner energy signature. As long-term exposure to Traveller and uh, all kinds of reality genetically affected Wesley. On some level, kind of like background radiation, with the awoken modified cells essentially turning Wesley into a star drive. As the cells try to reunite Wesley with the Traveller, uh, a kind of emergency feature the Traveller may have imprinted on Wesley in case of emergencies. But as the other experienced cells, they're further flawed by the comatose state Section 31 kept him in. The universal shifting, uh, you know, it inadvertently took the whole station with him for, for the ride in like sporadic travels across the universe, like several steps beyond the behind the Traveller trying to catch up with him. Mm. So now he's back in action. Wesley, you know, he's trying to find his place within the whole hold. His technical ingenuity being a massive help to a breaking apart space facility, but often he butts head with Patel as he oversteps his command. You know, he figures his time working under the great Picard and Traveller gives him more authority right than he has officially earned. Officially, he was a Federation cadet dropout who led to the murder, you know, who tried to cover up the murder while the accidental death of one of his uh, teammates. One of the best episodes, too. Yeah. Uh, but we still see this is a much more matured man than a boy genius we knew from TNG. Uh, and across the series, we see him go be accustomed to being part of a normal, or in this case, semi-normal uh, crew again. And as he finds his place, as he, as he realizes he can help see people, he wonders if he made a mistake running away from his problems when he agreed to travel with the Traveller. So that's my, basically my explanation for what's going on. I wanted to connecting Wesley to this. So in series two, as Wesley's growing accustomed with the hollow hold, uh, his place back in the main universe, and he's helping them try to find a traveler to fix what's going on with them, uh, Q-Boy keeps popping up time to time to mess with his new playthings, you know, and he develops a, a new taunting report with Travis, one of the more reclusive prisoners, who, who was kind of seen in the background of season one, so I didn't mention him then. Uh, he's a disgraced cadet whose ill conduct caused the death of his captain and a good portion of fellow crewmates. He has a lot of uh, regret about what he did. However, over time, Q-Boy's powers seem to be faltering, first in small ways, as his powers seem to have delayed them. Then later on, they either had the wrong results or failed to materi materialize anything at all. Meanwhile, Traveller seems to be gaining powers of his own. Uh, it's later revealed towards the end of Series 2 that the Q-Continuum has selected Q-Boy and Travis as the subjects for his experiment. A more extended repeat of a previous experiment with William Riker in Deja uh, Q, making this process a more slow-built one, with Travis slowly gaining Q-Boy's powers, able to create or alter most things, with the handicap of being unable to take back choices he makes with these powers. Meanwhile, Q-Boy gradually becomes less godlike and more like a human, much to his utter horror as he is captured by Patel and becomes another inmate of the Holohold. Uh, however, these new powers trouble and already disturb Travis. You know, at one point, he tries to resurrect his former uh, crewmate and captain he killed. Space zombie episode. Uh, so he, mm. he figures that's a mistake. He tries to keep a hold on him, but uh, something goes terribly wrong as a whole species is essentially murdered because of 
an accident he did. Mm. He manages to get a hold of his palace just in time to return the hollow hold and all its passengers back to the safety of Earth. Uh, Travis wants to repair the genocide he caused, but is unable to with the rule the Q Continuum gave about being unable to revert decisions. So, the Continuum eventually gives a choice. Travis is only allowed to restore the murdered species if he gives up his powers, and every other choice he made with his powers are also reverted, including the safe of Ben Jordan, who was severely wounded, uh, critically wounded at one point in Series 2. That's something I, <laughs> I kind of skipped over, because mm. I was in the character section. So basically, Ben Jordan is critically wounded at one point. Uh, he is saved by Travis, and this gives Ben Jordan a more introspective look at his life. You know, the second lease on life, it's made him more aware of his misdeeds, and he wants to help out. He wants to redeem himself, as it were. So when faced with the fact that if, his, if this power is reverted, he'll die, Ben chooses to let himself die, because he figures, hey, I know, I know I'll die because of this, and I know we'll be sent back into space on, the, on these random journeys. But this species, it died because of us. I've been given a second mm. chance. Uh, now it's my turn to give it up and give it to these, this species. So after much debate, they agree to, to take this course of action. But before they, send back, before they do it, before they send back an erratic journey throughout space, they decide to out Section 31, as it were. To, they risk their lives as a assassination attempts and you know, a lot of betrayal with the Federation happens. But eventually they manage to get the data files they need to the right people that will hopefully over time coalesce with uh, information given in DS9 to out section 31 to ruin their, the hole they have. Uh, escaping the assassinate, assassination attempts just in time, they return to the hole hold and they revert uh, Travis's powers. You know, they're, they're sent back into space, the revived, the, the deceased species is revived. And after a final goodbye to his friend, Ben finally dies from the wounds he received. Despite having lost their chance to return home, the crew of the Hollow Hold are comfortable with the decision uh, and that they, they believe that they, they are now more than what the Federation what believed them to be. They become a proper crew, a family, and they think they can take on anything. Just as Q, our beloved John Delancey Q, swiftly drops in and is like, uh, no time to explain. Here, hold these. Do not ruin anything. Uh, and he just forces into the hands two infants and just erupt, disappears while giving, telling them anything. Even though everyone's very alarmed, very confused about, about what to do now, they're suddenly parents. <laughs> so uh, series three will be about them essentially being parents now to these two children who are just showing the occasional disturbing sign of great power. Uh, even more callous, the Cardassian, he goes quite attached to one of them, quite quite fierce, and everyone's like, uh, is he going to manipulate this kid? But uh, over time, it, it seems more kind of developing genuine feelings for the uh, fatherly feelings. Uh, after showing up in the middle of the Dominion War again and encountering a group of refugees, the Hollow Hold takes them in, uh, further expanding the ship. And it's, you know, it, it's no longer a prison ship now. They see themselves as a, a refugee arc to help others during the Dominion War. Uh, we would see Wesley be united with Traveller as we learn more about who or what the Traveller is and its species, since that's never really been explained before. Mm -hmm. And we see a possible relation it might have with the Q Continuum, essentially being a variation of the Q from another universe. Towards the series, John Delancey Q reveals two children are some of the energy beings the Hollow Hold accidentally released and birthed during Series 1. Uh, the Q Continuum, you know, it, it managed to capture two of them uh, since they 
since the energy forms experimenting with all the life forms it's flying out these two energy forms took on the forms of, of humanoids human children and a cue uh since the previous season with giving Travis the powers, it was a massive test to see if they were worthy or uh, if not. They decided to give these children to the hollow hole to like, hey, guide these new life. Because we're polarizing powers, if we are in too, too much close contact with them, it'll seriously screw us both up. This is your problem now. You guide these things and try not make, make sure they don't overpower us as the ultimate life form in the universe. Okay, bye. Uh, something kind of goes wrong. And actually, uh, this chasm has opened up into this other reality. And the whole hold uh, decides to go inside. But to sum up, basically, the other universe is a universe of could have been where rejected life forms and evolutionary leaps were dumped during the formation of the universe. These specs were essentially meant to be the cue of that universe. So when they accidentally broke through, it kind of created a link to that, let's say, deleted realm. Yeah. And so now the whole hold series four would be about the whole hold exploring this realm that's kind of kind of forming it's kind of a corrupted realm of what could have been and try to stop a mass breakout of, of war between these two universes before it occurs and yeah that's kind of it so about four C series of plans possibly more uh but those those are the general main story arcs as well I, I i like how with this you can definitely see both our influences very clearly um you know mine is uh, a a political uh nightmare mm. babylon 5 style and yours is weird wacky doctor who in, in star trek yeah which i, I feel is, that's kind of the beauty of star trek is it, it balances yeah. political uh sci-fi comedy so i i i think it's kind of cool we, we've both gone to the different end the different end of that spectrum Mm. Um, and there's a lot of really cool ideas. The 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 Wesley thing was man. <laughs> um, I also like this idea, like this um, this uh, species that uh, the Q couldn't handle, so they put them in another universe, and then yeah. you know crazy shit happened. That's actually not too far off from the beta canon explanation for um, uh, what's his fa the the god entity um in star trek 5 oh that one yeah so in star trek 5 they just randomly go to like a uh uh you know the the planet that apparently has the devil <laughs> and and that's it and we never talk about it again yeah the book the books have explained it that it was a like he was like a radical q or something and so the q continuum just locked him up because they couldn't kill him <laughs> um and, and they locked him up in a planet uh so interesting that 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 ties there i also like how you haven't finished ds9 but apparently like the the reputation of section 31 you know goes outwards um and you did a section 31 thing much like i did mm. um and i find that interesting because section 31 is like this a thing, uh, sort of potluck a lot of uh, beta canon writers use to explain anything that doesn't make sense in the universe. <laughs> but also, you get into Discovery where they kind of glorify them and they're going to make a Section 31 show and you're like... What about that? Section 31 is a cool concept, but the cool concept comes from the fact that they're unambiguously the bad people mm -hmm. and everyone else thinks they doing bad thing, we have to stop them. Um, and, uh, for some odd reason, like, there's this weird obsession with, like, oh, yeah, Section 31, okay, and, like, they're kind of the CIA, but even the CIA did some shady shit, so, like, um, maybe, uh, maybe that's what the allegory was for, um, and so I think it's interesting, that, but we both went for Section 31 up to shady shit, especially considering you haven't even finished DS9, so where yeah. did that come from? Well, I was vaguely worth them, um, uh, my intention with this series was to have a kind of 
more corrupt side of the Federation, using the Hollow Holders cover-up. And when we were talking a while back, you mentioned Section 131. I was like, oh, I remember hearing those guys. Uh, this will fit perfectly with what I'm doing. The kind of idea I was going with was to reference real worlds, kind of experiments. Uh, MKL. That, sp- speaking of the CIA thing, mm. uh, like, uh, you know, the Section 31 was supposed to be an allegory for some of the shady shit that the CIA was getting up to for decades. Um, and MK Ultra was them. So, mm. yeah. I also like your sort of episodic thing. I thought about going that with uh, one of my ideas, but um, like to, to, to me, politics, you know, you, you can't have just a political situation end and then. Uh, and then you go to the next episode, so I figured mine would be more serialized, but I like how you sort of went with this hybrid, almost modern Doctor Who in the mm-hmm. style of, you know, there, there's a clear through line, but everything is still 42 minutes of weird, wacky space adventure. Yeah, I think what you did was uh, ingenious for, for, your, for your take, because, mm. as you say, if it was kind of the other way around, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work like that. Mm. But uh, yeah, again, I find it interesting how we both went with kind of the opposite ends of the possible TV and Star Trek spectrums. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I, I like how many characters you have. You know, I only had seven because the the average amount of uh, characters in a Star Trek, your main characters are like six to eight. Mm. Um, maybe you push the nine, but that's about it. Um, and, I, and I was like, you know, I'll just go with a nice little seven. Seven's a nice number, yeah. But but you went with all out on a bunch of like uh, characters, not only main characters, but just minor recurring characters, etc., who won't be in every episode. Um, uh, and it really helps flesh out that ship, you know, of this uh, of you know the them slowly the the two sides of the crew slowly sort of merging. Uh, and this is it's a prison ship and uh, being teleported around. So you have a lot of people in there. Mm. And, and I also like how you're using the, the, the whimsical side of Star Trek to still do what Star Trek does, which is make a comment on our real world. Uh, but that was that was very interesting, very inventive. A lot more wacky <laughs> than mine. Yeah, my, mine, I feared some of my stuff was getting a little too dark for Star Trek. Yours had very good proper substance. Uh, like you said, yeah. I was going more cosmic, creative stuff. But uh, yours had good... Mm political substance to it you know and again i love your parallels to real world you know american histories and founding fathers how that could translate to uh this this formation of a utopian Mm. well semi-utopian uh future yeah the the thing about star trek is you got to be very careful because it's essentially utopia but the thing is is that there's stuff underneath that utopia that kind of demonstrates that not everything is all perfect Mm. Um, and there's a large, a very vocal mar- part of the fan base that does not want the Federation to be anything but perfect. Um, and so with Star Trek, you have to sort of take this thing of, what if we solved most of our problems? And any of the problems that we still have are under the surface a little. And that's where things like Section 31 come in, or Terra Prime, etc. Um, and uh, I, I like when I wrote that Yan committed suicide, I was like, is this too dark for Star Trek? Uh, cause Star Trek can get dark, but it's always with the, like, things can get better. Um, and that was a very final statement. So I like yours where it, it's got this cosmic horror vibe and there's some dark thematic stuff, 
but for the most part, you have characters like Dr. Pilatus, who's just this crazy alcoholic woman who yeah. just loves to be crazy. And then you have a telepathic diva and, and stuff like that. So I thought that was a nice parallel because at times I thought mine was verging too too much in the dark territory for Star Trek because my main influence was things like Babylon 5 or Battlestar Galactica or the West Wing. Mm. Um, uh, but in a Star Trek style, whereas yours is very much... Uh, Star Trek mixed with a little bit of Doctor Who mixed with just crazy cosmic stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was that was a lot of fun, um, and there's some great ideas here. Thank you for joining us for our inaugural episode of Elevated Bullpen. Um, this was uh, just a random uh, thought that we've been sort of uh, developing over a little while. Uh, and hopefully you enjoyed our nerdy rampages into a franchise that we really like. We will probably return to Star Trek at some point, because mm -hmm. um, I know I have several uh, other pitches, like the Orion Syndicate one that I mentioned briefly, or a couple other ones um, that I think would be interesting. Uh, and I'm sure Josh the same way, especially because he's still going through some of the older <laughs> Star Treks. Yep, definitely. He may have new ideas that spawn on him. Um, next episode, which will be debuting in two weeks' time, because this is a bi-weekly podcast, um, is going to be a different style. Instead of pitching something if we had control over X franchise, it's fixing, uh, using a pitch to fix something that already exists. Um, recently, um, there were two uh, major series and major franchises, Doctor Who Flux mm -hmm. uh, and uh, The Book of Boba Fett for Star Wars. Uh, Josh is the Doctor Who fanboy. Indeed I am. Thank you. <laughs> I like Doctor Who, but not nearly as much as he. And I like Star Wars, not nearly as much as I like other things, but I do really love Star Wars, and I think it has a lot of untapped potential in certain areas, especially the criminal underworld area. And uh, both series had potential had mm -hmm. good ideas but disappointed us in many different ways uh so we will be pitching keeping most of the changes and and things from the, those series intact but reordering them changing them a little adding new context to make them in our opinion stronger yeah um so uh hope you join us for that in two weeks time thank you for joining us and bye bye <laughs> <laughs>